cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a pair of extra special guests. Ben Clymer took a buyout offer from UBS in 2008, right in the middle of the financial crisis, and said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to launch a site about watches, which has been my hobby and see where this goes. And, and that was 15 years ago. And it's turned into a $100 million business with incredible investors and just a huge brand on the internet. Jeff Fowler has been CEO of the company for just about two years. Uh, this really is a fascinating discussion. First, if you're interested in watches, it's amazing to talk to guys who have known so much uh, and are so plugged into what's going on in the industry and really are right in the middle of what's become a, a speculative boom uh, in timepieces. But also, this is a story of starting a small media outlet, a small web presence, and recognizing that there's business potential here and how to slowly grow that into something that's substantial. How do you hire people? How do you go out and find uh, investors? When do you do that? When do you take this to the next level? When do you as founders say, and CEO say, hey, I need somebody who can scale this and I'm going to step back and become chairperson and bring in a professional CEO to run the site? Uh, so there are a lot of different ways to look at this. I found the conversation to be absolutely fascinating. I could have gone for another two hours. Uh, with no further ado, my conversation with Hodinkee's Ben Clymer and Jeff Fowler. Let, let's talk a little bit about how a blog becomes a business. I, I know a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. 2008, you launched a blog after you leave UBS in the midst of the financial crisis? Yeah. But first, yeah. What, what were you doing at UBS? So I was basically the, the lowest of the low man on totem poles. Right. I was 24. I was working at UBS in, in wealth management. And it's funny, actually, before I even get into that, coming to Bloomberg is actually my favorite place to go because it, it is the only location that I visited pre-Hodinkee uh -huh. and post-Hodinkee. Oh, really? So actually, when I used to visit here, your systems used to pull up the original photograph ever taken of me as a guest. And it was me at 24 years old. No beard. No beard, dressed head to toe in Joseph 
Joseph A. Banks legitimately. Uh, I'm not dressed in that anymore, thankfully. And it was just an amazing flashback anytime I come here. I've been here a few times for, for other mm-hmm. shows. Uh, and so this is one of the, the few places really in the world that kind of unites my pre-Hodinkee and, and, and present day world. That That's really interesting. So post UBS. Yes. You you doing this just as a hobby, started, just as an interest? Started for fun. So I was I was a kid. I was in wealth management at UBS, and this was 2008 when Lehman collapsed, and the, the world effectively imploded. Certainly for people of, of of my age who had no authority at all. I mean, we had no cloud whatsoever in a giant company like a UBS, and they said basically like, look. You're probably going to get laid off. Will you take a severance package and get out of here? And I said, Hell you know yeah. what? Hell yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. And keep in mind, I had nothing. Both my parents right. are public school teachers. I mean, I didn't come from a world of luxury or finance or anything like this at all. I'm from Rochester, which is not anywhere near Westchester. Right. Uh, you know, a really dramatically different world. And I said, you know what? Like finance, this version of finance is just not for me at all. Uh, I always fancied myself a writer. My grandfather, who was kind of a mentor, not kind of, he was a mentor to me. He was still alive at the time and he was an entrepreneur. He gave me his Omega Speedmaster, which is a really nice watch. When mm-hmm. I was 16 years old, it was my only nice watch. So wait, you're, I'm trying to do the math. Yes. If you were 24 and 08, mm-hmm. so you you got this watch in 2000, 99? Yeah, around around there. there. I would say 98. And he purchased it 20, 30 years before? He actually purchased it, he purchased it in the early 90s. It was okay. a later Speedmaster. He bought it when he was in his probably 60s or 70s. So a late, it wasn't like something he had throughout his entire life. Right. But still, it's what I remembered him wearing. Uh, and one day, he just literally slid it off his wrist and said, I want you to have this, uh, which is unbelievable to me, obviously. Um, and That was his daily driver. That was his daily driver. That yeah. and a gold a Rolex Day-Date as well, mm-hmm. uh, which now my father has. Um, and it was just something so impactful to me. And he was really my hero. I mean, he represented something that that I didn't really see much of in Rochester, New York, which was a self-made, you know, truly self-made to a material degree, uh, was interested in the world, interested in in how things are made, nice cars, nice watches, mm-hmm. et cetera, and had very little to do with the cost of things, but really appreciated how things were made. And that it was always critical that he made me understand why an Omega would be $2,000 instead of 200 or Mercedes would be $60,000 instead of 6000 Mm-hmm. But really quite interesting. So so you have this cash out from UBS. If you can call it that. I think right. it was a grand total of around $9,000. All but right. For me, so, it, yeah, hey, in 2008, that was not yeah. nothing. Yeah. And look, and I was 24. I was living with my girlfriend at the time in Soho, just kind of goofing around. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like to be able to pay my, you know, I think my share of the rent each month was around $900. So like right. that paid. Hey, a, but your years were almost a year's worth of rent. Exactly right. Uh, so it allowed me to, to take my time and write. With that, uh, with that time, I ended up freelancing for the likes of GQ, for the Financial Times, How to Spend It. You know, great, really great publications, Mm -hmm. mostly about watches, but other men's lifestyle things, cars, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, restaurants. Ended up applying to journalism school here in the city at at Columbia for a master's degree. I went to undergrad for finance and computer science, so dramatically different field. And I said, look, if I'm going to be in media, and I wanted to be a true journalist, like a real Bloomberg-style journalist, um, I wanted to do it the right way. So I applied to Columbia, somehow got in, using my blog about watches as the foundation of my application, and uh, and did two years of a master's degree at, at Columbia uh, while I continued to to blog every day about about watches. And the site was called Hodinkee. It was. From the, it was called Hodinkee from the start. Hodinkee right? with a Y on it means wristwatch in, in Czech, of all uh-huh. things. Everyone asks. I'm actually not Czech. But I was just kind of goofing around and Googling, trans, Google translating what wristwatch was in different languages. And, and you might remember, but like, so in 2008, Google 
was the hottest thing on earth. I mean, Google sure. was like really kind of it's on its ascent. And the double vowel kind of like stuck with me. And another site that launched around the same time had a double vowel and it's called Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle right. site. So the double vowel for some reason really was popular with internet domains. Plus in that, you in that can't era. get you can't get a domain, exactly. right? I, I, I literally wrote down what was the inspiration yeah. for using the check word for watch. Yeah. But I know if you go to register a company or heaven forbid register a dot com. Yeah. Every word, every two-letter, three-letter, four-letter combination has been taken. Every common word in the dictionary, somebody's squatting on. Yeah. So you really have to get creative. Yeah, so we, we I, I'm still used to saying we as if it was more than me. It was just me, but I always used to use the royal we to pretend like we were bigger sure. than we are. Now big I actually have other company. people here, which is, we're a huge company. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> um, so, But back then, even more than that, I was already aware of the tenuous relationship, tenuous at best relationship that, that watches and, and luxury had with the internet. And so the, the first people to sell watches on the internet or even list watches on the internet were what we call gray market dealers, guys that had no legal right to sell watches so people that would so i'm guessing ebay was pretty big in the early absolutely. days right? still is still, right. look, ebay is the largest watch store on earth oh is that true absolutely absolutely huh. much That's... to the chagrin of the swiss uh but it is the largest <laughs> seller of watches on earth and look i mean it's just a, it's just reality mm-hmm. um but i mean forget ebay ebay is a real publicly traded you know has has pr- business practices that we all hi- hold in high regard well well you know there, there are other let, other let, sellers out uh, there let, let's put a little asterisk on on that one and <laughs> the, we'll circle the, okay. back that's a good one. But the uh, there were a lot of other purveyors of watches that really were not super, super um, ethical folks. A L- little shady, little yeah, sketchy. A little, bit, a little bit. And so the, the Swiss and the and the, the Europeans at large were, were really kind of reticent to, to to get involved with watches on the internet at all. And that includes even, even us covering them. So when I would go to Switzerland to say, hey, Rolex, Patek, whoever, Omega, smaller brands, can I photograph your watches and write about them? They say, oh, you know, we don't really want coverage on the internet. Truly, that that's how it was like in, in the early Very in like forward 2010. thinking, right? Exactly, very forward, forward thinking. There's a, there's a famous line that I've, I've told in a few other podcasts and a few other stories where a very, very prominent, I mean, the, one of the most prominent CEOs of one of the largest Swiss luxury groups in the world, told me to my face in 2010 that he thought the internet was for poor people, that nobody would ever make a buying decision based on anything published on the internet. And keep in mind, this is what I was doing for a living back then. That's, you know, if someone would have said that in 1990, 1995, I would have said, all right, they're a little backwards looking. But by 2010, yes. Amazon is immense. All these companies had migrated. Je- Jeff, what were you doing in 2010? I was working at Louis Vuitton at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they, it was actually Jeff who said it to me. Yeah, yeah it was me. Yes, it was me. Um, they, yeah. they have a pretty robust online presence. They right? did, yeah. I mean, at that time, it was likely the case that Louis Vuitton's .com store, if you want to call their online presence, was likely the biggest store in any of their regions globally. Certainly in the mm-hmm. U.S., LouisVuitton.com for the U.S. region was was well on its way to becoming the biggest site for for any sales for Louis Vuitton. So yeah, was uh, was well established at that point. But but Ben's right. I mean, even across the broader luxury categories of fashion shoes, I mean, luxury was late to the game. Saw it as more of a branding and marketing activity. And the watch industry in particular was very, very late to, I think, understand the true impact and uh, potential and, of, of And of when did you first, first become aware of this little blog called Hodinkee? Yeah, I was at LVMH for a number of years, mostly with Louis Vuitton for the first few years. And Louis Vuitton has a watch bi- business and division. Mm-hmm. And then within LVMH, I moved to Tag Heuer, which is a pure watch right. business within the broader luxury group. Um, it was really kind of in the Tag Heuer timeline for me, career-wise, that I became aware of Ben and of Hodinkee. And, and, and as he stated earlier, 
in my mind, Hodinkee was this huge operation. It was, you know, uh, dozens of, of writers and journalists, simply because the influence that they already had at that point. Mm-hmm. This is 2012, 2013 w- was, was enormous in the industry. There would al- always be someone from Hodinkee at a press event or press junket. Um, you know, the, the site was getting a huge amount of appeal and, and building a community. So we were well aware of their impact, um, but I hadn't met Ben yet. I was heading up retail for Tag Heuer for North America. So I was sort of traveling around from market to market, sh- store to store. Um, but yeah, I was, was, was very aware of Hodinkee's impact. So I'm going to jump to the end of the story and then we'll backfill what took place sure. between 08 and 2022. You joined as CEO um, last year. How did that transition take place, and and why were you excited about stepping into the chairman's role? So for for me, Houdinki has been my life's work. Truly, I mean, I have a child now, but I kind of think of it as my as my firstborn. And you know, like any child, you know, things tend to grow up and and mature. And I think you know, if there's one thing I can say about myself, it's that I'm acutely aware of my strengths and weaknesses. And <laughs> as my strengths are that I've got the vision, the idea. I think I'm a I think I'm a solid writer. I've got you know the creative mind to 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 build something that other people wouldn't see if i may mm-hmm. say uh where i'm not super strong honestly is running a business at scale honestly. execution is tough sure is to come to find out you yeah. know and so you know when we closed our series b in 2020 which as you mentioned include lvmh in a, in, a, in a minority share there's no there's no majority holder just to be clear mm-hmm. uh tcg tom brady tony fidel john mayer i mean like all these i mean that's a crazy list it's and, a crazy and for list people yeah. don't know who Tony Fidel is, he is essentially the guy who created the iPod Correct. and then said, I need to do something out, and then goes out and creates Nest. Yes, exactly. I mean, talk about a, a design, you know, legacy. Amazing. He, he's he's a legend, and he's, of, of all the people in, in my prof- in professional life that is a mentor, he would be the one. And actually, it was he who decided, or he who influenced me not to sell the business. I had the opportunity to sell the business in 2014, and he said, do not sell this thing. Let me help you raise money. So really? he actually invested as early as 2015. Uh, and I know from having seen him uh, on Talking Watches, I believe. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, he's been a watch geek for forever 100%. because the you know it's funny we we briefly touched upon what your grandfather said but the elements of design and precision craftsmanship come together in a watch in a way very few things do Perhaps the iPod and Nest are, are good examples. That, that's exactly that. And so, so Tony Fidel, a guy named Kevin Rose, who started Dig and is now really sure. big in NFTs, he was actually he stepped in and invested as well and was actually our CEO oh, for no a while. Uh, Tony Conrad, who's big in True Ventures, he did Peloton and Blue Bottle, mm-hmm. some really great you know Silicon Valley names that were all friends and we all kind of connected. They all kind of helped me shepherd in this new version of what Hodinkee could be, which was that of a retailer. And that mm-hmm. of, of somebody who had this amazing influence, editorially speaking. We had done limited editions where we designed them. I'm actually wearing one right now. Let's see. Um, what are you wearing? This is an IWC that we did in 2017. Uh-huh. Sure. Sold, you know, this was a $7,000 watch. We did 500, sold out in, I think, four minutes. Wow. Um, so, you know, it was it was with their help and their prodding that we said, hey, this could be something much bigger than, I don't want to say just an editorial platform, but we can do real content to commerce. And that was really not a model that existed anywhere so else. So let, let's talk about that. And sure. I want to loop Jeff into this of part of the conversation. So you start out as essentially uh, a, um, a non-professional media outlet, a blog. evolve into a media outlet, yeah. and then eventually add e-commerce. Mm-hmm. When you think about Hodinkee today, and I'll direct this to Jeff, who joined in 2022, is it media first, is it e-commerce, or is there no bright line between the yeah, two? Yeah, you know, I, I get that question often. And in fact, I get that question often even from new joiners to Hodinkee, people that have come aboard. Perhaps it's that we've hired them into the commercial side of the business. Perhaps we've hired them into the editorial side of the business. 
And it's not long before they ask, well, which one are we? Are we are we an editorial sort of content business? Are we a commercial business that sells things? And I sort of reject the premise that it has to be an or rather than an and. But mm-hmm. I think it's the and aspect that really makes us unique, that really sets us apart as a pioneer. And um, I'm going to quote actually someone totally not connected to our business, but recently at, at a conference for for CEOs, tech executives, the global president of Shopify was speaking and was on stage. Mm-hmm. And behind him in his slideshow, he presented the logo of Hodinkee. And a friend of ours was in the audience. It was quick on the trigger and pulled up his phone and recorded, uh, you know, this otherwise private conversation happening with CEOs. And the gentleman from Shopify said, does anyone know who Hodinkee is? And, and what, what year was this? This was last year. I mean, we were talking maybe six <laughs> months ago. Does anyone know who Hodinkee is? A bunch of hands, I presume, got you know put in the air because we were just listening to the audio. It says, for those who aren't aware, if you want to watch, talk to me later. And then he proceeded to say, Hodinkee is the greatest watch retailer on the planet. Here's why. And he said, they spent the first better part of 10 years just writing about watches, just mm-hmm. pursuing the knowledge of watches, furthering the knowledge of watches, building a huge community. And then, and only then, did they start to actually sell things. At which point, there was a captive audience of people ready to convert, which, you know, at the end of the day, it's really important if you're running an e commerce business. You know, conversion is the key to all of that. And I think, you know, we, um, and, and again, we get asked this often is like, you know, are you editorial? Are you commercial? Isn't there a conflict? Isn't there some sort of like, um, mixed sort of motives there. And, and, and we reject the premise again. We simply say, we write about things that we love, we sell things that we love. And in some ways, this, there's an intellectual honesty to that. You know, there's there's editorial choices being made at every stage, whether it's on the content side, whether it's on the commercial side. And it just so happens that a content to commerce model, if done effectively, is an incredibly efficient model. Um, a little, little secret, we don't sort of always say this, but something that we love to brag about is, it wasn't until 2021 that Hodinkee spent its first dollar on marketing. Hmm. Right, A lot of businesses have to spend a ton of their revenue on marketing in order to get that next customer in the door. Really, is the editorial side of Hodinkee that really is what gets people interested, keeps them interested, keeps them engaged. For many people, it's their daily read uh, on their morning commute or their afternoon commute. Um, you know, and, and and that's really the secret. The secret sauce. Yeah, and just so, to put, just quickly to put a fine ahead. point on that, just to add further context. So Jeff is exactly right. We hadn't spent a dollar of marketing, and literally not a dollar on marketing until April of 2021 when we hired our first CMO. We were doing about 30 million dollars a year in revenue mm-hmm. at that point. So we had gotten to from zero to 30 million dollars a year, roughly, you know, give or take, without a dollar spent on on acquisition costs. Wow, that's impressive. So since you mentioned the media focus on what you really love, let let's talk about what you guys write about. It's often about the history and the narrative surrounding a specific watch. The brand, the background, why a watch is important. Even if you don't like it, here's why it's significant. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, I, I mean, obviously I'm a fan for a long time, but discussing the in-depth background of each watch, when you started doing that, yeah. I mean, other than an uh, a pro- industry professional rep. A trade publication, yeah. Nobody was doing anything like that online. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And I think you know, if, if there's one thing that I, I'd say we got right early, which was this the idea of taking this thing that, that really could be perceived as pretentious or complicated or certainly expensive, you can't deny that, and explaining it in a way that is incredibly digestible for the average guy like a you or me or a Jeff, and also doing it online in a broadcast mechanism. Mm-hmm. There were some people discussing the finer points of high-end watchmaking in forums, but you had mm-hmm. to register. You, the comments right. were moderated. If you weren't 
weren't part of the gang, you basically had no clout at all. And I said, that just doesn't feel democratic at all. Like, I love this stuff in such a sincere way. I want to I want to basically share what I'm learning to as many people as possible. And then people can read it or not. They can comment or not. That's OK. Um, and I think that is really what made us different from everyone else. And we did it in a way that was stylized. And something that I've always really focused on is ensuring that the presentation of our of our media is really beautiful. And so the first dollars I ever spent at Hodinki were to, to actually have double engraved uh, business cards, which mm-hmm. literally cost me thousands of dollars. We were pre-revenue at that. Exactly. Right. You know, back in the day when business hey, cards were Hey, you got that nice $9,000 UBS? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Luker. I probably spent a third of it on business cards, <laughs> uh, truly. And But this idea of like presenting something that was just so much more thoughtful than anyone else out there. And yes, we were a blog and yes, we had a silly name and yes, we were online. But I cared in such a way that was so different than everybody else. And a lot of the, the journalists, and certainly not here at Bloomberg, but elsewhere in the world, a lot of journalists in the luxury space are there for the good wine, the pretty girls or guys, uh, the free travel sometimes you know, on these junkets mm-hmm. and th- these amazing experiences. And I get that. Like, I'm not going to knock people that are there for that. I wasn't I didn't know that existed. I wasn't there for any of that. I was there for the product and there to share the product with as many people as possible. And, and full disclosure, Bloomberg republishes Hodinky uh, columns on occasion. It goes into occasion, the, yes. in the wealth or pursuits section of Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't mention that earlier, but I want everyone to understand um you and I have never met before, the strictly an arm's length mm-hmm. conversation, yeah. but there is a relationship between Bloomberg and Hodinkee. But let me go back to spending $3,000 on business cards <laughs> on a zero <laughs> revenue like, of course blog. Did. Yeah, 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 yeah. When did it dawn on you that, hey, this is could be a business and maybe generate a profit. Yeah. So, I mean, er, early on we had advertisers. And back then, I mean, the the, the cost of running Hoodinky was my time, which was mm-hmm. effectively free. Uh, and then hosting fees on Squarespace and elsewhere. So we'll say- What were you using for software? Was so it Typepad or WordPress? First, first or? Tumblr for the first six months and then Squarespace. Okay. And Squarespace, and I love those guys, they were really instrumental to the growth of Hoodinky. Allowed me to design my own website in 2009 till probably 2012 or 13 when we got a professional upgrade. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, like, without them and the, the interface that we put forward, and everybody was using WordPress and other, you know, other really, frankly, more rudimentary at the time products in Squarespace. Squarespace was incredible. I mean, really allowed. It was almost like Shopify in a way, like really opened right. up a whole new world to me to, to present something that was really beautiful. What, what were you using before Squarespace? Tumblr. All right. So let me explain how old I am. Sure. When I launched my blog, yeah. it was on GeoCities, <laughs> oh <my laughs> which wins. means yeah. that you had to do HTML coding. You yeah. had to learn. How? And when yeah. um, uh, Six Apart came out with... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Is it movable type came out mm-hmm. with? Um, I'm trying to remember the the name of it. I can't even remember anymore. Uh, Six apart was uh, and movable type where it was all WYSIWYG where you didn't have to code Wizzy, indent yeah. or yeah. pictures yeah. or wait I could just drag a picture there. Uh, this is astonishing. Yeah. So you went from an hour of writing and two hours of coding yeah. to an hour of writing and five minutes of formatting. It was a that, that was oh three. Yeah. That was a game changer. Totally. So so when you go from four space. So whatever was next, what were you using as the so, underline? So we were in Squarespace until probably 20... We did a, a, a super custom version of Squarespace. Um, and just on background, I was a coder. Like, I, I in high school... Undergraduate, was, you yeah, said you were part exactly, of college yeah. and so, finance. So I was doing... I was banging out code for, for a good chunk of time there in college and, and before. I built my first website when I was probably 14. Um, so, you know, it was something that, that I really took a lot of pride in. And then in 2013, 14, a, 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 an agency that, that actually Jeff knows as well called Wondersauce... Um, 
those founders. What founded, a great name. I know. They approached us and said, hey, we love what you're doing. Your content is unreal. Like, can we help redesign your site? And I was like, I don't have any money, but sure, you know? And th- we, th- What year was this? Probably 2012. Okay. At that point, the 9,000 severance was gone. For yes. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> four years gone. later, yeah. it was gone. Long gone. But yeah, so taking a step back. So we, we, we had been making money with advertising. And uh-huh. advertisers came quickly because we had repre- we represented a Nobody else was in that space. At all. You had it to all. yourself. All online. And on top of that, our audience was wrapped. I mean, our audience was obsessed with what we were doing. And they were young. And they were they, they might not be wealthy now, but prob- they, they probably were going to be, you know. Uh, and so we had aver- our first big advertiser was Audemars Piguet. We had Patek as an no advertiser. No kidding. We had Rolex as an advertiser. Frankly, wow. in, a, in a different way than we do now, even. Um, it was really special because we weren't selling anything. We were just there to promote the industry. And what changed for me was after a few years of, of making a good living, and I own the whole thing, so it was right. like a nice little living for me. I said, hey, like I'm getting these emails that person X or, or woman Y is buying this Patek Philippe or Rolex, whatever, because of the content we're creating. And here's the proof. Like, here's an email. And I would take that to Brand X and I would say, hey, isn't this cool? Do you guys want to advertise more? And they say, oh, no, we're good. But like, you want to come to Per Se for dinner? And I was like, Per Se is lovely. Yeah, but like, okay. you know, that doesn't that doesn't pay for my rent. It doesn't allow me to grow this business. And I said, man, our audience is really special. And we started doing these surveys, internal surveys where, hey, right. what do you want from Houdinki? The number one response every single time to this day is for Houdinki to sell things because they trust us. Really very interesting. I, I, I'm intrigued by how you guys have grown. Um, I'm familiar with a few parallel stories, but uh, I don't know of anybody that's taken it to the level that that Hodinki has. I appreciate that. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Ben Clymer is the founder of Odinki, one of the world's most fascinating and well-read Watch sites. Jeff Fowler is the company CEO. Uh, a couple of years ago, they launched Houdinki Shop, mm-hmm. is, is what its current name is. I don't know if it was 
called something else. It, it's so dinky. I mean, the, the shop was, you know, it was basically, you know, to get into brass tacks, it was a subdomain powered by Shopify. So right. we did shop.hodinky.com, but it's Hodinky. It's all one company. All right. And it now does, sells over $100 million worth of watches, which yeah. is uh, not too shabby. So so let's talk a little bit about the wacky world of watch uh, retailing, starting with why can't I walk into a Rolex shop or a Bouchera Tourneau or any retailer and say, hey, that Daytona is pretty nice and that Batman Jubilee bracelet, let me take those two. Why can't we do that? I mean, the simple answer is just supply and demand. Um, you know, there's well more demand than there is supply of these products, um, brand new at retail. Um, you know, it's estimated that Rolex produces around a million watches 1. 2, per year. 1.2, something 1. 2, like that, yeah. yeah. So give, or, give or take a million watches a year. I, I, no one knows the real answer for exactly how many they could sell if, if they had, you know, the amount of supply to meet demand, but it's got to be in the millions. So you naturally get this issue of constraint. Uh, I. I don't believe it's a managed constraint. I don't think it's one where they're like intentionally trying to come some million units under the demand. But of course, like, you know, only Rolex would be able to answer that question. At the end of the day, scaling up in this industry is is not terribly easy. I mean, you know, let's they're all handmade, they're very intricate. Some exactly. of the nicer watches are 500, 700, 900, teeny tiny little tiny pieces. pieces. Yeah. yeah. And I, I often say the, you know, Leaving aside the brand on the dial of the watch, the most important thing on the dial of a Swiss mechanical watch is these two tiny words, Swiss made, usually right. around the six o'clock marker. And for that to be the case, it's got to be totally manufactured, assembled, quality controlled. Every step of the process is to take place in Switzerland. And I'm sure you visited Switzerland. Ben and I have been there many times. I have it's, not. It's on my list. It is a teeny uh, tiny country. Right. You know? <laughs> it's like I always say for most parts of Switzerland, if you just pick up your eyes and look at the horizon, you're probably looking at another country. <laughs> really? And, you know, the tiny villages in the mountains, you know, the the, the, the historical, uh, you know, cradle of watchmaking is all there. And a lot of people in those parts of the country are affiliated to the watchmaking industry, but you know, they're making one tiny subcomponent, teeny tiny part. And mm -hmm. it all comes together in one glorious supply chain that ultimately becomes these watches. But it isn't as though you can just scale that up very quickly. Right. And to, to put some flesh on the bones. So if Rolex is doing a million, million two, uh, Paddock is doing sixty thousand. Yeah, about that. And Langa is doing five thousand. Yeah, five, five, six, seven in that range. I mean, yeah. those are just insane numbers. Yeah, it's, right. it's seven thousand of anything is. Yeah. You know that that's how many Mustang convertibles yeah. they sell a year. Yeah, that's yeah. And good good luck getting. It. They cost about the same. Yeah. You could walk into a Ford dealer and order a Mustang convertible. You can't walk into a Langa shop now. To be fair. A lot of these places, they're like perpetual calendars that are a buck, buck sure. fifty. Yeah. Seriously, you yeah. could probably go in and get one. Yeah, if you yeah. if they like you. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And I, I but think those seem to be more available than the. Yeah, look, I think the the average. I mean, just to get you know, the, the Rolex question is one we get a lot, obviously, because right. every guy on the street. Look, I love Rolex. I own several. Um, but everybody. When knows you were what at UBS, is, yeah. did you notice that like every kind of shady. Stockbroker had a Submariner. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, I, 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 did, I, yeah. I know everybody loves that. I yeah. have a, a problem with that watch because I just associate it with, you know, junk stocks and hard selling. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And like the whole like used car salesman guy wearing yeah, a Rolex. Like yeah. that, that has that has dissipated quite a bit. And now people want Rolexes. You know, t when I was at Well, UBS, the, not the Rolex, just the Submariner. Got it. Like got the it. senior guys had GMTs and Daytonas, yeah. but the junior guys all were wearing subs. That's funny. And people kind of looked askance well, at you, it. You used to be able to go in and get it whenever Two you want. Two you said. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the, the world has just changed. And look, I, I would never take, or we should not take all the credit, but like sites like ours change the, the demand 
demand flow in such a way that Rolex or any brand just couldn't keep up with it. And then COVID, everything changed, you know, with right. COVID. COVID, we'll talk a little bit about COVID, yeah. but so let, let's talk about a couple of other smaller brands. Sure. Um, I'm a fan of some of the uh, H. Moser sure. mm -hmm. and company. Yeah. Yep. Grubel 4C seems to have exploded. Yeah. MBNF yeah. is yeah. next level. Jacob and company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's stuff. before we get to Artisans de Geneve, who have decided, we're gonna, give us your Rolex and we'll slap $100,000 worth of labor on it yeah. and yeah. make it a one of a kind. Mm -hmm. Like this sort of thing started in the car industry on a very, very small level. Right. You can personalize your car, put stripes on it. Right. But to take a $30,000 Rolex and turn it to a six-figure product, pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, Rolex is... is should be viewed differently than almost every other watch brand. Omega, giant market share to yeah, begin with. Giant. Yeah, giant. I mean, in the U.S., they're they're one half of all luxury watches. Is sold that true? In the I US, know yeah. globally it's twenty something. Yeah, in 25%. the U.S., it's fifty percent. Wow, yeah. that's it's just amazing. enormous in this country. Uh, and you know, look, it, there are big. If you go to India, if you go to Asia, there are brands such as Omega, Longines, etc. That that could rival Rolex in terms of popularity. But in the U.S., this is Rolex country for sure. Hmm. Um, but they are they should be viewed separately from almost everybody else in the industry. There, as I said, the, the demand mechanism that they have is just so robust it's like people don't even know why they want a rolex they just do and almost no other brand in, in the luxury space and watches cars anything really benefits from that so quick funny story i i have a guest a couple of months ago and he's wearing a reverse panda sure. which is the daytona chronograph with the white face and the black dials mm -hmm. and i don't remember what i was wearing it was probably my my yacht master is my it's daily driver mm -hmm. and um and i just happened after we're done i happened to mention it to him and he said about 20 years ago when we first launched the firm, him and his partner got one, and they went to their local AD and said, I need 30 of these. Yeah. This is 20 wow. years ago. <laughs> and they're and I, great. Why? He goes, yeah. every time we make someone a partner, we give them a daytime. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, talk about- That was a good investment, by the way. He's in private equity. <laughs> yeah, he's he got a good, talk yeah. about yeah. spotting value before yeah. anybody else did. But that sort of thing could never happen. Well, no, Barry, you don't have to go that far back in time to get to a moment where it was possible to go into many of the brands you just named and ask mm -hmm. for a discount on a watch. And Come not only on. they have it available, you'd be able to get it for a discount. Yeah. And Ten he, years ago? Five oh years ago? Less. I, I mean, mean, if you're talking about MBNF Moser three years ago, pre-COVID? Yeah. I, I was looking at ago. a Torbjorn and the Moser and just couldn't wrap my head around the price and yeah. I couldn't pull the... Yeah. trigger and now i regret it not because i'm a flipper sure every watch i've ever bought i still have right unless i've given it away um but just the thought of like oh i'd love to have that for half of what it's going for yeah now. once you break that this is going to sound awful but here we are you know once you break the hundred thousand dollar mark it becomes a lot easier do it once and you can do it all the time a lot of demand limited supply yep. i couldn't help but see a bloomberg headline last week rolex and patek investment beats s p 500 gains over the past five years. Correct. In other words, if you went out and bought a bunch of Rollies and a couple of paddocks, yep. you outperformed the market. Is this what's driving the speculation in the in the watch industry? I think it's part of it. And again, I, I think to really trace the history of what got us here, you'd have to go back to, again, uh, you know, if I may say, sites like Hood Inky, um, that really helped to kind of encourage more curiosity about this industry, build a community of people more and more of whom are interested in this in this product category. I think you can't ignore the impact of the Apple Watch, if I may say. I mean, this was why is that? Well, this was meant to have been the the, the nail in the coffin of the mechanical watch. So right? let's, it was, let's let's back that up a little bit because I I like where you're going with this. So quartz crisis, you yeah. get all these cheap Japanese quartz watches. Yeah. 
easy to maintain, battery, yeah. precise to seconds a year. Yeah. And why do I need a complex, expensive mechanical watch when I get a cheapo? Yeah. Look, quartz? we've seen we've seen this story before. This was meant right. to have been the end of the Swiss, you right. know, in mechanical watch industry in particular. Um, obviously, you know, there were there were some uh, incredibly talented, committed executives at that time. Many of whom are are lauded Anyone today. Anyone in for particular being, you want to mention? I, I think the one who probably gets and maybe deserves the most credit, wouldn't you agree, is probably Jean-Claude Biver, who- And Nick you know, Hayek. Nick Hayek yeah. as well, you know. Uh, the guys. designer of the um, uh, Audemars Piget Oak and the uh, Patek Philippe Gerald Nautilus. Genta. Genta yeah, has, has to get a lot of credit yeah. for yep. saving the watch industry, right? Uh, is yeah, he, yeah. Where do you put these three guys it's, in? in if, I, if I could hop in, I yeah, mean, please. Slightly different. So Genta was early 1970s, and he was just a designer. So it's mm -hmm. like saying, mm -hmm. hey, like design me a coffee cup. Here's right. your coffee cup. That's it. We're done now. You know what? What AP and and Petak and others did with Genta's design is really what allowed them to kind of continue to to, to grow. But I think what, what Jeff is referring to is really a decade later mm -hmm. when Quartz really kind of came in. And to be clear, Quartz won. Like if you look at how right. many watches, ninety percent of watches uh, out more, there are really, probably ninety nine percent. Right. You know? yeah. So just to be clear, like Quartz won. Yep. Um, that doesn't mean that this that the Swiss didn't have uh, its own little kind of pocket of influence and pocket mm -hmm. of, of growth potential. But as Jeff is saying, Jean Claude Beaver, who revived Blanc Pond and then mm -hmm. Omega in the nineties, he was the first one to sign James Bond and Cindy Crawford to Omega. Huge uh -huh. deal. Um, Mr. Hayek, who designed the Swatch, right? I mean, that is a Swiss made watch for back then. Was probably what. 25 Maybe, Probably, yeah, 30 bucks. And that's giant, right? Yeah. Giant. People collected them like beanie babies. Yeah. Just, a swatch in the 80s was as bigger than anything today. I mean, mm -hmm. it just cannot be kind of uh, surmised or can really understood today here. Swatch in the 80s was everything. Because they the turned industry. watches into fashion exactly as opposed that. to timekeeping. Exactly that. Huh. They still have a few tricks up their sleeve, right? They're well, the we just saw what they did with Omega exactly. and the Moon. And they had people Huge. lining up around the block to get Nuts. to get a watch release. Yeah, and right. so we, we've done five collaborations with Swatch, uh -huh. right? I mean, Houdini. We've collaborated with Hermes, with Leica, with Omega. I mean, really, you know, high end brands. And we did with Swatch. And the guys that are buying our sixty thousand dollar Vacheron or whatever are also buying our swatches. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. So I totally get the appeal of a Seiko mm -hmm. for three, four, five, six hundred dollars. You get a really well-made watch no that looks pretty good, tells pretty good time. And if one of your nephews says something, oh, you like it here. Yeah. It's not, it's, I don't know if I would do that with this, but I certainly would do that with um, anything from Seiko, even some of the nicer divers that no are Seiko eight, nine hundred dollars. But Swatch always, uh, maybe it's my age, Swatch always start, struck me as kind of like a fun, Fashiony, not a serious timepiece. Well, I mean, it, look. First of all, Swatch owns Blanc Pond, Breguet, Omega. Oh, you, the you company. Yeah. I'm talking exactly. about the Swatch watch. Exactly. Not the, right. the company is massive. Yeah. So I, I would argue though that does it does it need to be something complicated and something serious? Because for some people, uh, th that gets in the way of just the enjoyment of wearing the watch. I think hmm. you know. Uh, for I'm aware when I wear a, a very nice watch. I'm aware. Oh, gee, am I going to get on the subway with this? Yeah, what do I no, have to very do? True. You have very to, true. We'll talk about what AP is doing yeah, guaranteeing. Yeah, yeah with a swatch, you probably wouldn't have that concern yeah. for sure. And, and I think, you know, there we talked about Gerald Genta. I mean, like his impact was surely from the design angle. Mm -hmm. I mean, swatch, one thing they've done incredibly well is just design great looking watches and design watches for different people with different appeals. I, I was in Paris recently. They did a really cool collaboration with Cafe de Flore. We've talked mm -hmm. about the Moon Swatch. I mean, our, ours are beautiful watches, yeah. you know, the ones that we've collaborated collaborated with Swatch on. So design is something Swatch is known for. And for some people, it's a, it's fashion. You know, it's something that they put on, on their, on their purchase. So, so let's talk about the Apple Watch. Yeah. When, when the Apple Watch comes out and it starts just selling uh, crazy, crazy numbers, yeah. 
What was going on in Geneva? What were people thinking? They were terrified. And really? It, yeah, in full transparency. Like, here we go again. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. it was the end of the end of times. Right. Uh, and in full transparency, I was a consultant on the Apple Watch. Like, I, I helped I helped them. And Johnny Ive was on our second cover of our magazine. I mean, uh-huh. we, we know those guys I super recall well. That. And so, you know, I, I'm a lover of Apple. Like, I was just a design guy, the guy who's spending money on business cards when he had no money. Like, right. you know, I, I, what Apple does is just remarkable. So it was honored to work on that project. And so I was actually the only person from the watch industry to attend the launch of the original Apple No launch. kidding. And that story that I wrote, which was totally unbiased, like even though I helped kind of work on it, it was like what they were doing with the Apple Watch in terms of materials and in terms of the way that the bracelet snapped on and off. I mean, like it was miles ahead of Switzerland. Miles. Mm-hmm. And these things were four hundred dollars. Right. And that really, really terrified the Swiss. And the Swiss are they're they're they can be persnickety for sure. And they mm-hmm. really thought that anybody that was supporting the Apple Watch was an enemy, including us for a time. No kidding. Truly. And we, we still, to this day, sell Apple Watch and we're proud to sell it. But it really got people to think about the wrist as real estate again, which they had not been that's thinking about in a decade. The wrist as real estate. Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. So I noticed you're not wearing an Apple Watch. Not today. And you're not wearing an Apple Watch. I was not. this weekend. Yeah. I, I consider it a great privilege to not be notified about anything. Like to <laughs> me... To me, an Apple Watch, that. an Apple Watch is. Wait, I'm tied into. I, I'm getting Slack notifications. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting Twitter notifications. I'm getting email and text. Leave me alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I, I, and I know a lot of people that you know. If they lost their Rolex, they'd be upset, but they couldn't go a day without their Look, I, their I, Apple Watch. The Apple Watch, you can make whatever you want it to be. So right. I wear it solely when I go to the gym and when I play golf, that's it. That's right. the only time that I wear it. Historically, I used to, when a few versions ago, I had one that was cell-connected, and I would leave my phone at home when I would go driving, and right. I needed a vintage car to kind of escape. Um, but so I use it for two things, working out and, and really working out, and that's it. That's it. Um, but I do not have notifications of emails, texts, et cetera. It's really, for me, giving input to it. How many steps did I take? What kind of calories have I burned, et cetera? Huh. And you, you don't want to wear a nice watch when you're golfing anyway because the pist- little pistons that hold the face in place will snap if you're wearing a watch yeah. uh, and it swinging could. a golf. Yeah. Or it a, could. Yeah. You could always buy a Richard Mille. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's probably the most responsible thing to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, go well, get the most one financially that, responsible. Go get the one exactly. that Rafael Nadal wears when yeah. he plays tennis. Or Bubba, But it's on his other hand, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's not on his... Uh, yeah. But but Bubba Watson has yeah. his own Richard Mille, and he that's wears right. it every time he plays. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. It's just pink, right? Well, uh, it's, it's pink. pink now. Is originally white, but yes. Funny, and funny pink three hundred thousand, a million. His was when it launched was around six fifty. I would guess now probably around a million. Yeah. Right. So so forget strapping a BMW to your wrist. That's a very nice three bedroom condo. Oh yeah, right. yes. Some, yeah, some place. Yeah, yeah. Two bedroom condo with yeah, a that's a garage with full a terrace. Of BMWs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know that not everybody is going to be comfortable no. or even the people who can afford it, a lot of people look at watchinistas for lack of a better word and like you guys are crazy. Yeah, and I, I think to some degree, everyone that's passionate about anything is a little bit crazy. Sure. Uh, but I think also, if you look at, I mean, the other thing that I'm interested in, like you, is cars. And so mm-hmm. if you look at the running costs of a great car, let's say you buy a car and a watch, both $50,000, right? Right. Own it for, own them both for 10 years, get the enjoyment for both for 10 years. The watch, you basically, if you want to have insurance, you can. You don't have to right. have it. Storage is nothing. Put it in a drawer, a safety deposit box. Cars, insurance, maintenance, parking. Cars are so much more expensive sure. to own and maintain as a, as a collectible asset. Absolutely. It's, it's remarkable. And I do both, so I know. Um, but watches, they, they can do so much more than cars. A, you're wearing you're wearing them right now. So am I. So is Jeff. And these are things that, like, th- these are real um, almost talismans for for 
for people's lives. And so mm-hmm. like when my daughter was born in, in December of 2021, I gave my mother, my mother-in-law and my wife a watch each to celebrate the birth of her. Mm-hmm. And those watches are hers. And like, you know, for until until the day that she dies, you know, hopefully long, far away, those watches are hers. And she'll remember that that these were given, you know, the day that she was a born. milestone exactly. sort of present. And I think, you know, the, the Omega that my grandfather gave me, that watch changed my life. I can wear it every day. When my daughter was born, I was wearing that watch. And when huh. I asked my wife to wear to marry me, I was wearing that watch. And what'd you get married in? Uh, a Patek, a Patek fifty two seventy. All right, because yeah. you weren't fooling around. This was a serious. That thing. was yeah. We were not messing around. We were in Rome, and yeah, it was uh, it was it was a good one for sure. When you travel, do you travel with multiple watches? Either of you? Yeah, it, it depends on where I'm traveling to. Um, recently, we were in Geneva for Watches and Wonders, the big international mm-hmm. trade show of watches. I think I had nine watches for that event. Really? So a different yeah. watch twice a day? So, yeah, multiple times, multiple watches in the same day. Sometimes you know you're you're meeting with a brand partner you wanna you wanna represent. Sure. Uh, sometimes I'll bring one watch if I'm going, or two watches usually is a minimum. If I'm going, you know, on a golf trip, I'll bring a watch I wear golfing. I'll bring right. another watch that's sort of like a daily wear. Um, usually something that can kind of go with different types of looks and outfits and activities, but. Uh, and just for the record, Ben mentioned, you know, you don't have to insure a watch. You should insure your watch, especially if you're traveling with it, especially if you value it. And side note, we offer insurance. Hoding and we're going to talk do. a little bit about that. But as, since you brought it up, someone asked me this question the other day. and I said, I don't know the answer, but I know the guys that do. Mm. You have a, a, a rider on your home insurance with a number of watches listed. You travel with that watch. Is that covered under your homeowner's insurance or do you need to have a separate policy on that there watch. there are lots of questions like that that you could ask when discussing how a homeowner's insurance policy could cover the value of a lost or stolen or damaged uh-huh. watch i would just say ignore all those questions because to be honest the best way to insure your watch is not to attach it or assign it to your to homeowner's policy put a it will dedicated yeah i mean we, we've had stories from people who had to make a claim on a damaged or lost watch mm-hmm. while it was a part of their homeowner's insurance then their homeowner's insurance got canceled and they couldn't get homeowner's insurance again it's just not a situation when we want to find yourself i in. totaled yeah. a car at five miles an hour i got t-boned and i had that exact same thing happen right you were the exactly. homeowners and the umbrella was canceled and you had a scramble to replace it because yeah. it's easy enough to get homeowners. An umbrella is a little more complicated. Right. Yeah. So in, in 2021, we actually launched our own insurance program that, that myself and a few with other Chubb. guys. With Chubb. Yep. So with Chubb, Chubb is the underwriter, but we conceived this product ourselves. This is a totally unique product designed for watch collectors. So it has nothing to do with homeowners, nothing to do with anything else. And you can dynamically... And, and really retroactively assign and, and unassign insurance attachments to, to any watch. So like you're out of the house right now, you could insure that watch when you go home tonight and put it in your safe, turn it off, do it all on your phone. Mm-hmm. And so it's all in the Hodinkee app. It's underwritten by Chubb, so you know, best in class. It's really an amazing thing that truly, like, like I can say, you can critique Hodinkee for anything you want, but our insurance product is better than anybody else's by far. Huh, I'm going to mm-hmm. take a look at that. That's yeah, really, it's one of the little that's buttons really right at the bottom. Couldn't be easier. And by the way, you guys did a very nice job on the app. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm still waiting for Bring a Trailer to roll out an app. <laughs> yeah, so, so, I don't so understand. They did a billion dollars in sales. Uh, yeah. They sold a hundred thousandth car. It's amazing business. They, they definitely need to. Uh, but but this is something I, uh, you guys were internet 
Uh, although so were they. Yeah. I ran one. Yeah. Didn't they start out as? Uh, yeah. So I've I've known Randy who started Bring a Trailer for ten plus years. We used to do a column called Bring a Loop that was very much inspired by Bring a Trailer. <laughs> um, know those guys super well. I mean, they've done amazing things. They obviously sold to Hearst in, mm-hmm. in the middle of COVID. Um, and good on them. I mean, they've they've got a great thing going. I mean, they they really you know we admire a lot about what they do. I know that they admire, admire a lot about what we do. Um, but they've been able to to really own the collectible car category in an amazing way. You you guys talk about uh, what you were doing during the pandemic. I know a lot of people were streaming Netflix. Mm-hmm. Bring a Trailer and Hodinkee is what get me occupied. <laughs> me too. Yeah. And, a lot of and, people, that's the case, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, to the detriment of my bank account, but to the betterment <laughs> of, of my wrist and garage. Yeah. So, so it was, and I mean, I was into this sort of stuff long before, yeah. but it's just amazing how, gee, I, I'm not commuting. I'm getting so much work done from home mm-hmm. in my pajamas, unshowered. Yeah. We, we had a rule in our house, you had to shower once a week, whether you <laughs> needed reasonable. to or not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was just, you know, and occasionally get out of your pajamas, but it was just really easy to say, I'm done with everything, all right, now let me uh, wordle, and then Odinky, oh, <laughs> yep. and then bring a trailer. And yeah. it yeah. was, uh, it kept it kept everybody entertained. All right, so, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, retailing. You launched the shop in 2012. Mm. You're now doing 100 million plus yeah. in in revenue. Yeah. Congrats. That's a real number. <laughs> it is. Thank you. Um, but you guys are also expanding that. You bought Crown and Caliber. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the thinking of the, behind the purchase. Yeah. So 2012, uh, the first Shopify site was set up um, to sell some straps and related accessories. At the time, I think Ben and the team would would pop up at occasional, you know, men's men's wear, flea markets, things like that. We're always sort of like scrappy and and you know trying to connect you know lovers of watches with products that they love limited editions as ben mentioned was a big push towards the commercial side that was around 2015 the first watches uh, the first one was a, was a max Buser watch mbnf mm-hmm. so a beautiful beautiful limited edition collection and then it wasn't until 2017 and i say 2017 i emphasize that because that's not that long ago that Hodinkee was the first online-only authorized retailer of watches. So that five years, yeah, that reticence to kind of move online and really see online as a channel, as a commercial channel. I mean, that 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 sort of veil wasn't pierced until 2017, and Hodinkee was really the trailblazer. Launched with eight brands as authorized retail partners up. And now we're up to about forty brands. So you know, in the it's last, it's a nice part, list of brands. It's a great way. list yeah. of brands. I mean, you know, for some of them, where they're only online authorized partners, so Hermes, Apple, uh, Omega. You know, for those three brands, the only other retailer besides themselves who sells their watches as an online only channel is Hodinkee. Uh, but then Omega include, is probably second, second to, to Rolex. To yeah, Rolex. Correct. I mean, they're a substantial. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Substantial watch seller with hundreds of, of models, it seems, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, they sponsor the Olympics. They sponsor James Bond. I mean, yeah. this is a global, global brand. Yep. So, But at that point in time, Hodinkee is still new watches, limited edition projects, which you're not doing them every week or mm-hmm. sometimes not even every month. We do about a dozen a year. Uh, and then vintage watches, which, you know, there's always a market for collectors who want a vintage watch, or really a one-of-one. Define vintage. Uh, typically defined as a watch that's before 1990s. Okay. Um, you know, When did the modern used watches start showing up on Hodinkee? When did you decide to do Modern that? used? Yeah, so that would be the 
pre-owned category. I guess mm-hmm. pre-owned distinct from vintage in that yep. they're both pre-owned technically, but vintage would be 1990s right. and before. Same with pre-owned, cars, right? Yeah, yeah and pre-owned would be, you know, again, a modern. Would it be could, 80. could actually be a, a watch that someone else has just purchased and is flipping. They're, they, they've never worn it. It's in its original box with original papers. Uh, that was with the purchase of Crown & Caliber, which was the business mm-hmm. that we acquired that you mentioned that was in February 2021. And I think, you know, looking back uh, as an outsider, I was not involved with the business at that time, an incredibly shrewd decision. Because basically online at this point, you still have very, very few brands that have meaningfully moved their new watch sales online. Some, not at all. So Rolex doesn't sell online. AP doesn't sell online. Paddock doesn't sell online. Even authorized dealers of those watches are not allowed to sell the watches online. You can see the reference information, and then it will say visit a retailer, and then you go and find a local retailer. Um, The only way you can buy those watches online is to buy them pre-owned. And pre-owned, which, you know, as Ben mentioned earlier, used to be quite a Wild West sort of shady business online, certainly not something that you would kind of, you wouldn't use catchwords like trust or authority or authenticity. It, it, it was really kind of buyer beware situations. Right, right. Uh, the The online channel, you know, really ha- had a lot of opportunity to be cleaned up. And I would say that Crown & Caliber, a business that's been around now for a decade or, or so, is one of those businesses that was doing a very good job of, of, of playing the game in a clean way. They were, they were buying the watches that they were selling, taking ownership of those watches, mm-hmm. which I think says a lot because it means that they were willing to vouch for those watches in terms of their authenticity, the quality. They had invested in a true watch shop in Atlanta, Georgia, where the business was founded and, and mm-hmm. is based. So you have you know watchmakers who have graduated from the likes of the Rolex School of Watchmaking, the Richemont Technical Center in, in Dallas, Texas. So you have real, real trained, skilled artisans that are able to repair and service watches uh, to make sure that when those watches are being sold to the next owner, that they're in as good a condition as when they were originally sold. That, um, basically the acquisition by Hodinkee allowed Hodinkee to kind of fast forward its way into being a player in the pre-owned space, which is is a larger market than the new watch market online. About 30% of pre-owned watches are sold online versus only about 5% of new watches that are sold 30%, online. 30%, that's yeah. an amazing statistic. Yeah. I never would have guessed it was that large. Yeah. You mentioned authenticity. Uh, there, there are lots of replicas out there. What do you guys make of the super replicas that, without a loop, uh, certainly from from a wrist distance, it's hard to tell. Uh, like in the old days, you would see a fake Rolex, Chinatown, twenty five yeah, bucks with a ticking second. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, no sweep, and yeah. the, it would jingle, exactly. and yeah. you know, no it was jingle, the best twenty five yeah. bucks you could spend in yeah. the world of watches, yeah. and kept pretty good time. Today. They're pretty impressive. Yeah, now and they're pretty sophisticated counterfeit pieces out there. Out of I mean, China mostly, right? Some that you know go so far as to include all like manufacture original parts on the outside of the watch, and it's right. only when you get inside into the movement that you understand that the movement has some parts or the original movement has been swapped you're, out. You're telling me uh, Rolex doesn't come with a twelve dollar <laughs> Chinese made? <laughs> no, they don't. No, they no, don't no, do that. No, no, that's not the case. Is that by the way the new transparent case back on the Daytona? Yeah. Is, is this something that we're going to start to see more of? as an anti-counterfeit, or that just happens to be a pretty titanium watch? My my guess, look, I don't know at all, to be clear, and I really mean that. Uh, I don't think that has anything to do with anti-counterfeit. No. I think it's more celebratory, and they want to mm-hmm. show off the new movement, et cetera. And to be clear, it's only in the Platinum Daytona, which not is even a, in the Which Steel is unfortunate. The, one of the nice things about Langa is every one of their watches has yeah. a display case back, which is quite Rolex low. is really one of the, I mean, look, every, not every Omega, but 99% a lot of, of the Omegas have Sapphire case do, back. Sure. I mean, so, so does Grand 
and Seikos. I mean, it's it's yeah. it is uncommon for a high end watchman to not show up today, the but yeah. that today. wasn't always the case twenty sure. years ago, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So so, how big of an issue are these super counterfeits? I mean, for for us, they're not a major issue, and that's again down to the fact that we've had uh, we have an investment in people that are able to sort of suss them out, and that's even before we get them in our possession. We have pretty good you know tracker. You can eyeball yeah. something on yeah. a, just a photo. So, some I of mean, them even where StockX selling sneakers has a counterfeit division. Yeah. Because they were getting so many fake Nikes coming in. Yeah, right. We we, we have a staff of authenticators. Yeah, truly. Right. And mm-hmm. the, the benefit of us being us is we have direct relationships with brands, and we can mm-hmm. say, "Hey, Brightling, Grand Seiko, whoever was this watch born with a black dial or a blue?" You dial? can track mm-hmm. the serial yeah, number directly. Too. Yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah. not not many people in, on the pre-owned side can do that. And as Jeff said, I think you know m- much credit to Hamilton Powell, who's the founder of, of Crown and Caliber, the business that that we now that we now own. You know, he really wanted to do stuff that is like buying a watch is one thing, but selling a watch is actually brutal. And if you've ever tried to sell a watch, which doesn't really sound like you have, it's awful. And so if you want to, to do it, you either go to Chrono 24 and it may never sell. You go to auction, they're going to take 20%. With Crown and Caliber and now Hodinkee, we're going to tell you what we're going to pay then and there. You're going to send in the watch, we're going to send you a check. That's it. You're done. So I'll tell, I'll tell you, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. So you take them on consignment? <laughs> no, no, no. We no, own this. You we're, buy them. We're cutting Correct. the check. Yeah. yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So One of the few. Well, I didn't realize that. That's, and, a, big, it, that's it, a big difference. Instant quoting about 80% of the watches as well. So again, you go on to crownandcaliber.com, hoodinky.com. You type in the reference number, some information, Rolex, Batman, et cetera. Ask a couple clarifying questions. You get a quote right then and there. And if no you like kidding. that quote, you send the watch in. We authenticate, inspect it, make sure that it is as it was described. Send you a check. You'll have a check right away. So my brother has a Vacheron. Um, I forgot the, the model. It's one of their more globetrot or something popular. Okay. Overseas. Overseas. Yeah, overseas. But they came out with a black dial, and he has a blue dial, and I've never seen a blue dial the, anywhere else. The, that's a Good classic Vacheron color. That blue dial is gorgeous. Yeah. And, and very deep. I, yeah. I literally have never seen that anywhere else yeah. in, in blue. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, I'm going to send him over to you guys because he wants to sell it. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I had no idea you guys would, would cut a check like Indeed. that. Indeed, yeah. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So, so we're talking about online retailing, but I'm going to throw one of your quotes back at you, oh, which boy. is physical retail will always have a home in luxury and watches. Of course. I think in, in everything. Uh, in everything. Yeah. So, so sometimes, like one of the things I, I like about the Yachtmaster is it has a heft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel it. Yeah. When I, I Baltic makes some nice watches. Mm-hmm. You put them on your wrist. Yeah. Different. You're, you're unaware you're wearing one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And even, even this has a little bit of a heft. Well, it's gold. Which is mostly the yeah. the pink gold. But yeah. uh, you know how how easily can you buy a watch that you've never had on before? Uh, pretty easily. We do about a hundred million dollars a year worth of it. Yeah. Um, so exactly. you know. There's... Okay. So let me rephrase <laughs> yeah. that. How. How comfortable can so if you know what you want, yeah. right? So the Moser Torbion and Vanta mm-hmm, Black, sure, yeah. kind of an interesting watch. I've yeah. had it on in the in the ice blue and the dark blue. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure which way I would pull the trigger in that, but I've worn it and I'm like, okay, I'm comfortable with this watch. Mm-hmm. But if I've never tried a watch on before, mm-hmm. that the new ice blue Daytona with the brown bezel, right? If you're gonna drop. You know, again, uh, an S class on your wrist. Right? Can you do that online, or do you want to go in and, and experience it? Well, first? everyone's different for sure. To be clear, Rolex doesn't sell online anywhere right. with anybody. Not not with us. Not with not even themselves. So you, no, no Rolex new can you buy online. Just be right. clear. But like, let's use a brand that that we sell because this happens every day. A brand new Omega Speedmaster, which is about mm-hmm. a seven thousand dollar watch, sapphire case back, great manually wound, iconic thing. We sell those all day long, and if people don't like it, they can return it. Right, mm-hmm. and so like, thirty what, days. How long you give them to? Yeah, I think it's fourteen days. Yeah, 14, fourteen, two weeks, uh, plenty of time. Unworn, yeah, right. you know. I mean, we can't like have them wearing it around. You try it on. Yeah. If it's not for yeah. you, you send it. Back. Look, I think you know what what we did with with the Hodinkee shop in two thousand seventeen. We took. I look the, the brands that I hold in high regard are no surprises, and mm-hmm. they're not unique to me. It's it's Apple. It's Nike. I mean, I wear Air Maxes almost every day. If I if I like the Air Maxes, I get those are good ones. Um, you know, if, if I like the Air Maxes that come in the mail to me, I keep them. If I don't, I send them back. I get my I get a refund in three days or five right, days, and that's right. fine. And so taking these very normal 21st century e-commerce practices and applying them to, to watches is not that crazy. But we were the first, and still we remain one of the few who does it. Farfetch does it. Mr. Porter mm. does it. Great e-tailers like that. You're, you're out of Farfetch. How did that experience uh, translate to Hodinkee? Yeah, I, it's interesting because I talked earlier about when I first encountered Hodinkee and you know, sometimes if you're if you go away from a thing and you don't go back to it for a while, and mm-hmm. that was the case for me. I was really busy with my career. My wife and I were having three boys in three years, so we're, we were pretty busy. Wow. I I hadn't paid super close attention to everything that was going on in, in the world of Hodinkee until I was contacted by a recruiter. Until I got a chance to meet Ben, and I could I just couldn't believe how much had evolved at the business because in my mind it was still yeah the preeminent watch blog. But I had no idea. But about, watch you know, blog, yeah, not retail. Exactly, right. all the retail, like uh, the way that the business had evolved was was enormous. I mean, the fact that it had launched its own insurance product—I mean, it was incredible. 
And sort of, I think what I saw was I had just spent almost six years at Farfetch, starting when you know the the primary business of Farfetch was then and remains you know a marketplace. But so much had evolved at Farfetch as well. I mean, we had. Uh, launched a platform services business, which was taking all of the core technology and making it available for other retailers like Harrods and, and the likes. Um, we had acquired a few businesses. I was involved in the acquisition of Stadium Goods, a, a pre-owned sneaker marketplace. So just seeing kind of how that business had grown and evolved, and and, and I had kind of grown up in my career with it, um, I saw a lot of similarities with Hoodinky, if I'm honest. A foundation of things that were there that uh, one of our investors likes to say, are they close to maturity or are they like 10%? And 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 I'd say lovingly, they're closer to like 10%, meaning like there's so much upside. There's mm-hmm. so much still growth and evolution in front of us and, 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 and different ways that we can kind of push this business forward. And just being able to work alongside Ben as a founder, as somebody who's, who's I think, truly one of the most influential people in this industry, uh, just was like an opportunity. I, I simply, I would, I would have never forgiven myself if I didn't go for it. Someone once told me that's the kind of sign of an entrepreneur. I'm, I've never been an entrepreneur or started my own business, but I had that feeling. I had that but feeling you've that worked I, at companies that are, I don't want to call them startups, but not that, you know, there's a difference between joining Amazon and eBay today and joining, yeah, sure. joining eBay when it's two years old and people are like, hey, we don't know if this is going to... Yeah, I, I think I'm probably the guy right behind the guy with the machete blazing a trail <laughs> to the jungle. I'm with him. But, you know, he's got the he's the one who's been there and sort of taken that sort of initial leap of faith. I mean, it, it, it's one thing that I think you always just have to like never take for granted in a business like Hodinkee. And I think Ben did a good job of this very recently for an internal meeting was just reminding people that this thing wasn't always a given. You know, and I, he went back to his original email inbox from 2008 to the first emails he sent from his inbox, and they weren't to colleagues; they were to his family members. I was like, "Can you guys believe I'm getting paid to do this? Seventy-five dollars, <laughs> truly." Yeah. So, so Jeff is referring to a post that I was writing about watches. I was being paid seventy-five dollars a post. Yeah, truly. Then the first advertising contract, which was 12 months run of site, uh, right. for a price that today might get you a day. Oh, you know, of run of site. It was it was, yeah, was twelve hundred dollars yeah, yeah, for the, the year. Yeah. So I, th- those things. Now, you know, that, that's 15 years ago. And again, remember that the first part, the first decade of those 15 years largely was spent just developing the most important editorial presence uh, for the world of watches. I mean, I, I still think it is a startup, but it's a startup where there's, again, there's a trail that's been blazed. My, my role, the way I see it, is really just to kind of like, I suppose, increase the speed and certainty of execution and, and really help it scale and build and, and sort of help us realize what we think is our fullest potential as a business. So, so let's stay with retail. Uh, I was going to ask you who your competitors are, but really, in terms of new, nobody else is really selling very much online. Yeah, new. look, I mean, a handful of micro brands, but sure, none not, of the bigs are selling. Not online to the level other we are than now. yeah. Look, I mean, look, there, there are a lot of and look, it, it's funny you say competitors. Like these are all our friends. Like we get coffees with them all the time. Right. Watches the Switzerland, Tourneau, Bucher. Like these are great world class retailers. We have a lot. Like they do stuff that we can never do, and I think we do stuff that they can never do. You mm-hmm. know, um, but there's nobody that competes with us directly in everything we do, and I think that's what makes us so 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 special. Frankly, like this is a truly unique business, a piece unique if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so many times over the years, people said, oh, well, is Houdinki the Warby Parker of watches, which it's not? Is it the Glossier of watches? It's none of that. It's something else entirely. And I think what the ambition is here is to become kind of really the, the global leader global leader of watches, content, and commerce. And like, really be Watches 360. We want to insure your watches. We want to help you buy and sell them. We want to sell you straps. We want everything to exist in watches on, on Houdinki. And we're getting there. And I think that's what's so exciting about it. And I think to, to Jeff's point, like I view... Really, all brands is one of two things. You're either a challenger or you're an incumbent, 
right? Mm-hmm. And I think like a Tourneau, which is an amazing business and one I've got a lot of love for, like they're an incumbent business. They've been around forever and they're now owned by Booker. We, to some people, are probably an incumbent, but we're not. Like this, as Jeff said, this I came from nothing. This business came from nothing. And the way that we view everything we do is from the mind of a challenger. We want to continue to push and continue right. to change things. Keep in mind, the internet runs in dog years. So you're an incumbent on the internet. Yep. But- when you look at some of the watch brands that have been around since the 17th century, 18th century, Vacheron 1755, uh, I mean, older insane, than the country, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just absolutely so. So, uh, 2008, 2009, young business uh, in the internet, sort of middle aged. Yeah, and I want to be clear. Like I, so the the business was a, a media platform with a little bit of e commerce that was basically three people until 2015. Mm-hmm. Then we raised our first venture capital. We were probably 10, 20 people. Now we're 130, 140. So it's bigger now. That's but a real business. It's mm-hmm. a real business. But we're still not Tourneau. We're still not Bloomberg. We're still right. not you know something like that that is ubiquitous in a great way, um, and really has the the um, the kind of the the certainty of its future. Like we want to to continue to push and challenge what the luxury watch industry and what all industries kind of think of when they think of retailers. We are a retailer, we are a media platform, we're a community platform, we host events, we're an insurance product, we are a strap, we're a brand, we make things that say Houdinki on them. Uh, we are all these things, and that's mm. exciting to me. Couple of more questions about retail before we move on. Gotta ask about Rolex getting into the certified pre-owned business. What What's that about? Where do you think that goes? I. I sort of use the analogy of like the world of automotive. We talked about cars earlier. I mean, it, for me, it would be almost like uh, impossible to think of a world where you know BMW or Mercedes or Cadillac didn't offer a certified pre-owned program under their own brand, under their own mark. But but let's break that uh, take that apart a second. You you go and buy a uh, you want to buy a used car, but you like the advantage of having uh, the manufacturer tell you the car's in good shape and they're going to warranty it for. You know, another three years and fifty thousand miles. So you're going to pay a little bit of a premium to pick up, especially if you're looking at an expensive car or yeah. a complicated. Yeah. You know, a- any of the more sophisticated vehicles out there. It's nice to have that backdrop when you're going out and buying a GMT from Rolex. Do you? What does CPO do for you, other than tell you uh, have Rolex tell you? Uh, we looked at this watch, we cleaned it up, here you go. I think for some people that's uh, worth the premium. And, and at the moment, at least based on the evidence that we can we can observe, you know, where Rolex certified premium programs have already started to roll out is they are pricing it at a premium. Uh, the only way that- Premium to a premium retail to or this, premium to use? A premium to use, the premium Real to market, the yeah. kind of market price of market pre-owned. Value. So a Submariner, which we were talking about earlier, you know, uh, $10,000, $12,000 watch at retail, uh, Usually selling for the upper teens, maybe twenty thousand dollars in the pre-owned market. You know, the Rolex certified pre-owned prices are going to be even higher than that, maybe huh. in the mid to upper twenties. And so, for a certain buyer, that maybe is peace of mind. Maybe it's the kind of knowledge of having bought it from a Rolex authorized dealer, certified by Rolex, making sure that it's only ever been serviced by Rolex. And and but but again, I think where the comparison still holds to a certified pre-owned program is. There's a finite number of places that sell certified pre-owned, and those are the brands themselves, or the authorized dealers of the brands. There's tons of places that sell pre-owned cars, and there are lots of places that sell pre-owned watches. I think consumers have choices to go to a trusted player in a pre-owned mm-hmm. space, or maybe you know go buy it off of eBay from the original owner. Take your chances. Maybe you get a lemon. Maybe you get something. And in our case, I mean, we're I think as trusted as it gets. The trust is unimpeachable. Never you know never sold a non-authentic piece. Never sold a piece that we couldn't stand behind and vouch. For for in a pre-owned capacity, 
And to the points that we were discussing earlier, the ease of selling with us is unparalleled. I think the ability to sell and transact your sale of a watch over the internet, get an instant quote, get an instant price. The way the certified pre-owned program is working at the moment is you have to physically take your watch into an authorized dealer that is offering the Rolex CPO program. Mm -hmm. They'll inspect your watch. They'll offer you uh, something in exchange for your watch. And then I think, and this is you know just my own personal views, then they have the challenge of showing the original piece side by side with the pre-owned piece. Right. And there's something a little off there, right? If you're selling uh, an original Submariner for that $10,000, $12,000 retail price, and then the pre-owned piece right next to it for twenty seven, twenty eight thousand, explaining <laughs> that is is a challenge. But it, my, my point being that like, their 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 entry into this market, if anything, just serves as an endorsement of the pre-owned market. I think it's the biggest brand in the world. Whatever they do matters a hell of a lot in this space. And I think uh, we look at that as a good thing. It's kind of a blessing, if you will, for the pre-owned space and for the importance of the pre-owned space in the kind of constellation of you know how people consume and and, and transact with watches. Huh. So let's do a compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mangle his name, the CEO of Paddock. Mm-hmm. Thierry Thierry Stern. Stern, Yeah. Uh, So he goes out and buys modern era paddocks on the used market to figure out who's flipping them and to call a dealer to account. Hey, why are you selling our rare watches to somebody who's just flipping them on the secondary market? Uh, can we assume we'll never see a CPO program from Paddock? That well, is just- I actually, I, I think you guys actually reported that pretty recently, yeah. that, that Thierry said that— That uh, was an interview that one of the Bloomberg reporters who were at Watches exactly, and Wonders Exactly, right. Did. So, I mean, as as of today, it seems like they will not get into CPO, uh, and that is not surprising to me, really. Smaller uh, volume, it yeah. makes much more sense. Yeah, much, exactly. The, the ticket price is so much higher. Uh, with, with Rolex in particular, I, I think it's important you, to you know. You could get in uh, to a Calatrava relatively if modestly. If you can get it, 25 probably. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, if you can get it. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly. much more than they were just a few years yeah, no, ago. Prices, and, and again, you can't crazy. you can't find them at retail. They're, they're, there's Sold more out. demand than supply. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Rolex is a different thing. And I want to be totally concise here. So like when, when we say Rolex CPL, like the dealers are mostly going to be doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dealers set the prices. It's not like Rolex set the prices. So cetera. what's in it for Rolex versus, uh, you know what's in it for the dealers because there's only so much supply. Uh, I went to an event uh, out in at the Manhattan Americana mm-hmm. uh, at the big watch yeah, place London over Jewelers, there. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I, I believe that's correct. Yep. And they have... They're pushing everything mm-hmm. except AP, Rolex, and Paddock because you want to get on their their good side, buy some of these watches. I mean, it's uh, they don't come out and say it, but it's wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, hey, yeah. if you wanna if you want a Batman, you need to buy one of these Pistachio Breitling <laughs> premieres, and then we could talk about you know uh, a Batgirl on a Jubilee if that that's what gets you excited. Um, how did we ever end up in this place? Well, I mean, it's it's the uniformity of taste at this point, and I'm going to blame it on Instagram, my friends at Instagram. You know, it's really? just so many people posting the same stuff over and over again. And five years ago, nobody cared about the Nautilus or the Aquanaut. I mean, they were good watches, and we all liked them, but it wasn't a big deal at all. And people were buying what they liked, and then all of a sudden, people say, "Wait a minute, I can I can buy a Patek at twenty and sell it for sixty, sell it for a hundred and sixty, which the Nautilus was trading at first, really fifty-seven eleven A." And so that that changed the dynamic completely. It used to just be like, "Hey, I like this thing, I'm going to buy it. I may make." money i may not then it became if you're not making money you're a fool and that's how a lot of people in finance is it just five years ago is it that recently i would say i would say pre 
pre-COVID. Before COVID, it was not a concern. It huh. really wasn't. Okay, Daytona, you knew you'd get that. An Aqua, I'm sorry, a Nautilus, maybe you'd get that, but it wasn't that way. I mean, I bought my 5711R from Tiffany here in New York right. in 2013. In or Tiffany 14. Blue? No, no, no. This is a rose gold one. Oh, this is okay. a normal one before the blue one. Uh, and they, it was sitting in the case, and that's it. And just now, there, I'll yeah. take that. And that watch at its peak was probably worth four hundred thousand dollars. You know, I probably bought it. And for would you pay forty five? Something like that. Ten X is not a bad. Yeah, not exactly. Bad. But that's it's a what good thing everything. you left UBS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is this <laughs> yeah. is where. Yeah. So so here's the crazy thing. I have slowly warmed up to the Nautilus. It's not my favorite watch. Yeah. I, I don't. Some of the design I don't. I don't get. Sure. The Royal Oak. I, no. I know people who are like have eight of them. I love them. I, I just can't wrap my head around. I, and I know. I, love it, yeah. I, I understand the historical significance. Yeah. What what makes the Royal Oak and the Nautilus? For you, is it an aesthetics thing? You, yeah, you put it on your wrist. And you just, yeah. So first of all, I'm I'm ten years older than both you sure. guys. So I remember the '70s yeah. as a horrific decade <laughs> of, all of around, polyester yeah. and disco. Yeah. Right, that's the '70s to me. Yeah. And the design ethos. By the way, I have a very contemporary house. I love mid-century modern. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to the some of the designs of the, I was just in Scottsdale, Arizona at the Valley Ho Hotel mm. that uh, like the Rat Pack should be walking. Sure. Yeah, it just yeah. that sort of design yeah, ethos. Yeah. Uh, it, it It's before I was born, but I'm like, I get it. Mm-hmm. But I remember the 70s as just like a horrific era. Yeah. May, it, maybe it's the same thing as the Submariner. I just associate it with. Yeah. So I look at the Royal Oak and I'm like, yeah, it's got that kind of, remember the giant Porsche Carrera glasses? Sure. <laughs> they, they were horrific. Yeah. And um. I I know the the historical significance. Yeah. What makes the watch so special? Well, I mean, the, the, first of all, it was the, my first high-end watch. I bought two Rolexes, and then after that, I saved up and I bought a vintage AP, an A-series Royal Oak. Uh-huh. This is probably 2010 or something. What, what year was the watch? 1972. It was okay. an A-series, so the first so one. So really and, early. Oh, yeah, wow. early one. Box papers, the whole thing. And uh, it... it First of all, it was the AP was the first high end manufacturer I ever visited, so that opened up my eyes to what watchmaking could be, if that makes any huh. sense. So to, yeah, see, yeah. to see how a Royal Oak is finished, polished, the case, you mean movements you, not a boutique? You went to the to Switzerland and labor. Oh, suit. really? Yep. yep. We should all get such a trip. It right? was amazing. Honestly, you, I you could should imagine. definitely do that. Uh, I know. I know guys that go to Modena and do the Ferrari, the Ferrari tour thing, exactly, and they come back and they say whatever you I spent on the car wasn't enough. I'll, I'm gonna yep. so pr- precisely that. I know someone with a, a 550 who just came back and, yeah. and bought a 430 because yeah. he could. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's that experience. You see what really goes into the stuff and you fall in love. And then the, the Royal Oak in particular, the the jumbos, the 39 millimeter watches, right. wear jumbos. So, that's yeah. hilarious. That's what right? they're called. Yeah, <laughs> they wear so amazingly on your wrist. And mm-hmm. it's just, it really, it, it is just, I think, like the chicest, most elegant watch a man or a woman can wear. I, lo- I mean, I've loved them forever. I've, I bought one as recently as a month ago, two months ago. Um, it's just an amazing thing. And then all of a sudden, they're actually cool. And I think 10 years ago, they were not cool. And that was kind of fun. But it's a lot more fun when they are cool and people know what they are and people are excited to see a Royal Oak on your wrist. And then you've got like huh. our, our friend John Mayer, who's very close with them, and uh, Ed Sheeran and Kevin Hart and all these like kind of cool, interesting people started to get kind of hip to the, the Royal Oak thing. And now it's fun. It's part of like a cultural phenomenon. Well, I, I love the idea that if you know, you know, meaning yeah. so I could I could wear any of my eclectic watches or, or the Langa. Nobody yeah. says a word. Mm-hmm. That's but every now and then someone at like uh, some event will come up and say 
Is that the moon phase? Yeah. yeah. If anybody yeah. knows what that longa is, that's a very good sign. Yeah. Because yeah, sure. then they're like, oh, this guy. That's is, the real is, stuff. Yeah. This guy's plugged into what what's yep. going on in that space, and it's not just a matter of you have money, you could go out and buy the most expensive no car. Yeah. It's you're picking something very very specific. So. Uh, so one of the people here has this Nautilus. He's sat on his wrist for 30 years. Sure. And it's the the blue leather band and the blue face. Yeah. And it, uh, it's not the full chrono, but it has the offset yeah. second so hand. Annual calendar. Yeah. And I've kind of warmed up to it as the, every time I see it, I'm like, I just appreciate it a little more. Yeah. And I didn't feel that way when I first spotted it. It's yeah, like, the, yeah, yeah, Nautilus. The, the, the Nautilus <laughs> and, the, and the, I'm sorry, I keep saying Aquadon. Nautilus and uh, Royal Oak, if I may say, I think they belong on bracelets. They were conceived on bracelets by Gerald mm-hmm. Genta. So ones on strap, I've often, I haven't had a super strong affinity towards. Uh, but those on bracelets, I think are, are just fantastic. Huh. They're not they're not a Rolex. Like you're not taking them swimming. You're not taking them diving. You right. can't go chopping wood in them. You know, Jeff and I both live Well, you shouldn't chop wood in any sort <laughs> you of You shouldn't, but sometimes it happens. I learned the hard well, way. Again, I, I can't even throw a ball with this. Yeah. That's how I. I would advocate for the, the reshared meal yeah. if you're chopping. Exactly. Always the reshared <laughs> meal. Just go back right. to the reshared. Go straight off a half million dollars <laughs> when yeah. you're acting. So, so as long as we're talking about specific watches, what are some of your favorites, and what are your Grail watches that oh, man. you haven't the, gotten but you would love to have? Yeah, uh, I mean, my favorite, my favorite watch is the Omega my grandfather gave me. No surprise there. Like right. that's the one. I, as I said, I put that, it on. Clearly, a family emotional connection. No question. There. And all these watches have an emotional yep. component. Outside of something like that, yeah. Outside of something like that, look the 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 moon watch, the hand wound moon watch for seven thousand bucks. You can buy it on Houdinki all day. Right, and get it. It is the best watch in the world for that kind of what, price. What the Speedmaster? Speedmaster. Uh, so my Speedy, I just refuse to get the Hexalite because I know I the the beauty of Rolex. Yeah. And I just had this after almost twenty years, fifteen years. I just had this repolish. Yeah. Because I destroyed this watch. Mm, sure. Um, it's actually tight since they repolished it, but <laughs> I um. Uh, this is a uh, um, platinum yacht master, yeah. and I bought this in '08 from mm-hmm. a mortgage broker that was just liquidating everything. That's too. So fun. that's my. <laughs> that's an amazing a, As story, I'm yeah. writing bailout nation, yeah. I buy this watch from a mortgage broker. So Incredible. that's my emotional. Yeah. Um, but you know, you could beat the crap out of these. The same thing with the Speedmaster, but the Hexalite, Hexalite I was yeah. terrified about. Yeah. So I got this. Uh, I paid up for the Sapphire. Got it. Um, sandwich, yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, when I smash it into something, I don't have to worry about a dent, a ding, yep, a yep. scratch, I get whatever. That. I get so, that. so that's a, a great entry-level sub-$10,000 yeah, watch. It's, it's, it's both an entry-level and exit-level, if that makes any sense. Like, some of the wealthiest guys I know that have owned every paddock, every longa, whatever, right. they end up wearing a hand-wound moon watch. And I guarantee right. you, when I retire from, you know, whatever this is, that's the watch I will wear every day. Hand-wound moon so watch. So when I wear... So my two sub ten thousand dollar watches that I wear pretty regularly, one is the Monaco with the gray face sure. from uh, Tag. Yep. The other is the Speedmaster, and every now and then someone will say, "I go Speedy, yeah, yeah,", yeah. Yep. and it's just like uh, you know, if you know, you know, sort of thing. It, totally. it is. So let's take. How about you, Jeff? What are you wearing sub ten? Yeah, I mean, my so my my two sentimental favorite watches again both have a connection to my 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 family. One is my great grandfather's pocket watch. It has his initials instead of the numbers, so it's wow. J Virgil Allen, and we named our third son Virgil after my great grandfather. So it's got his name on it. A beautiful, you know, hundred and twenty year old American made pocket watch. And then I have my father's Seiko, which he wore every day, and it's a quartz Seiko on a on an elastic strap, a little bit like this one, right. elastic bracelet, I should say. 
this is a Hariki limited edition I'm wearing today. This was under two hundred dollars, right. not even under ten. That was under two hundred dollars. Timex collaboration we did. And I love it because of that. That that sort of you can't. And see those it, are pretty bulletproof, is, right? Yeah, Time I mean this X. is this this I literally don't have to think twice to put it on my wrist. I wear I, I Ben knows I'm on a quest to kind of get as many Hodinky limited edition watches as right. I possibly Which we're can. We're happy to help with. I yeah. know a guy. I was yeah. Say, yeah. I know a guy. You know, it feels, I can feels intro you. special to me to kind of own a little piece of our history as a brand. And again, we've done limited editions with everyone from Timex and Casio G Shock all the way up to Vacheron and you know, like crazy independent brands like Grunfeld and 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 Laurent Ferrier and others like that. Um, I guess my yeah, this 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 is like one that I'm wearing a lot currently. But not to copycat, but I love the Omega Speedmaster. And again, the Hodinkee Limited Edition Speedmaster is a personal favorite. Right. It was now, done and for now the you 10th have the 50th anniversary with the Snoopy. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's a great little yeah. watch. Although that's kind of gone ballistic in price. Also, they, a, yeah, lot yeah, have, yeah, yeah. a lot of them have. Yeah, a lot of them have. So so. Uh, if you go to YouTube, you can find the old 60s and 70s era commercials mm -hmm. for Timex. Takes a look and it keeps, keeps on, on ticking. Yeah, right. I remember they would strap it to a front of a Super boat wrestler. with a bunch yeah. of <laughs> Navy SEALs out, yeah. and the boat would be slapping the water, yeah. and they'd pull the watch out and still still going. They were, they were great commercials, and the watches last forever. So, Fun fact. Did you know the very first television commercial ever aired, ever, worldwide, was a watch brand? Uh, and what was Bulova. the brand? Oh, no kidding. 1941, I want to say, during yeah. the World Series game or something like that. 1941, it was nine seconds. It cost them $9. Jeez, that's Amazing. unbelievable. So let, let's take a step up above ten grand. Yeah. What, what would you guys Ooh, yeah. look at? Uh, I'm giving you me. a budget, 10 to 50. So easy for me. And it, it, we talked earlier about, like, you know, you saw a watch. You fell in love with it on the spot. You decided not to pull the trigger, and then you regretted every right, license. Right, It kind of got away from you. For me, it's actually it is a Lunga one, but it was a special series of Lunga ones they did called the Soiree series, Soiree Dial. It's a yeah. mother of pearl dial, and it's this one in particular. Phillips had it in their uh, watch auction last November. Ben, myself, and another colleague of ours were at the Phillips headquarters in Geneva. Saw the watch before it was under the hammer. Loved it. Just what, everything what about it, it. What did it go for? I want to say it only went for about. Well, only it went for thirty-five or forty thousand Swiss francs, so it's definitely within the budget you've just right, given us. Right. But and again, Lunga ones there aren't. The, this is aren't not a ubiquitous product. There aren't that right. many of them. It's one of those if you know, you know. Right. I love the aesthetics of the dial. I love everything about the Lunga brand. But like this one in particular, just the dial just totally captured. I would look at it and I would just get lost in the dial every time I'd wear it. Uh, yeah. I oh so so you didn't pull the trigger. I didn't pull the trigger. Right. How about yeah. you? What what got away? Uh, well. The, the stuff that, that has gotten away is generally a little bit higher-end stuff. So I have one of those that I've never even thought about pulling the trigger on. What's that? And recently, well, I, I'm asking you the okay. question, but so before we get to the crazy higher-end stuff, yeah. you know, under 100, over 10, yeah. what what would you wear? Weirdly, the watch that like I really kind of hated when it came out and now I love and just never pulled the trigger is the Platinum Daytona. I'm a hardcore Daytona guy. I'm uh, with you. I just never, I, when I was, I was which, actually Which color thing. combination? So the, the Platinum one is only the, the ice blue with the brown. With the brown yeah, ceramic. Exactly. Do, you, do you like the new, I love I the case like the back, yeah. 
But I kind of like the face of the older one. Interesting. Like I, if I could mix those two. Yeah, I I prefer the new one honestly, and I, uh-huh. I may I may I end up going for it. Yet. Uh, it's it's great. Um, that one I I really disliked in 2013 when it launched, mostly because I was oh, really? sour. I was sour that they didn't give us the steel watch with the ceramic bezel. That right. was the big thing that that came out in 2016. Got that. Right. Um, so that's a watch I've just like weirdly never owned, which is strange because huh. I love platinum watches, I love Rolex, and I love the Daytona. I just never did it. And now you know we'll see. Um, yeah, but that's, that's a really. Can I tell you that blue brown? And again, dating back to the '50s, '60s sort of fashion. So my wife used to teach fashion illustration and design. She's a colorist, mm-hmm. and you show her that light blue with the brown, and she's like, wildly underrated, perfect combination. People yeah. miss it. And when that came out with the display case, yeah. I mean, what what can you say? Yeah, I mean, it's look, it's an eighty thousand dollar chronograph. Um, so at that level, it's a little price. Well, look, you're into you can buy a Longa, you can buy a right. Patek, you can buy a lot of stuff for eighty thousand right. bucks. You get the platinum bracelet, which is expensive for sure. Um, so it's it's a I've got a I've got a complex relationship with, with that watch for sure. We'll say <laughs> so let let's talk Grail watches, yeah. regardless of price. Mm-hmm. What's the one that's out there that that is the killer for you? There's a there's a few. I mean, there are several really. You wouldn't be surprised to learn um, a thirty four forty eight paddock, which is their first self winding perpetual calendar, uh-huh. in particular in white gold. Those were kind of trading in like the mid two hundreds for a long white time. White gold. What's the face color? It's silver. Kind of all white, right because yeah. they've run the they've done the salmon they've done the white. So th- this is way earlier. This is nineteen sixties nineteen seventies. Oh really? Yeah. All so right. the very first ones. Those were trading in the mid twos forever. The minute I could afford one, I kind of hemmed and hawed, and now they're trading for about eight hundred to a million. So, so as a Daytona guy, what do you think of like the the Newman Daytonas in the sixties era? Love, love. They're not crazy. They're like for the same seventy five, you could get a nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, six two three nine. Yeah, uh, I lo- I've I've had many of those i've had a bunch of paul newman's so uh, no no it's not a grail watch look a, a 6263 mark one oyster paul newman which is kind of like the big bad paul newman right. i've i had one of those i sold it too soon wish i still had that but a gold paul newman i've never had that's mm-hmm. that'd be something fun but these are crazy watches you know uh, i mean really expensive watches that i like i don't i don't live in manhattan anymore i live upstate those just don't fit my lifestyle anymore <laughs> when i lived right. in manhattan and it was kind of out and about it kind of made sense but now as a father in particular it just doesn't compute the terrible for chopping wood it always comes back to chop riding my canoe you know things like that (laughs) so so what's your grail watch jeff um money is no object it it would it would i think i'd go with a watch that uh comes from a craftsman from a craftsman's hand so i'd probably a roger smith or philippe dufour Mm -hmm. um you know knowing that i'd own a piece of art from an artist somebody who individually made this piece by hand put a stamp on it um saw it from birth to basically like right. conception i mean I, yeah that, that that would be it for me um and again i think philippe dufour is uh turning 75 not mm-hmm. getting any so he's only gonna now. be doing so many yeah of these. and he's still making every part every component every piece by hand roger smith you know kind of next generation but yeah, yeah reshep you know, th- th- these guys who are making these watches just uh, you know it's incredible what they do. It's a it's a one man operation, start to finish, right. and I just think yeah. like something like that. That's bonkers. It's uh yeah, it's like you're They're buying doing an, twenty watches a year. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It'd, be, it'd be like you're buying an original 
Picasso from the man himself while yeah. he was still painting. Yeah, like, and, Ro- and you know that. Roger in particular, and I'm lucky enough to own one. I've known him for forever. Uh, his story is amazing. He makes 10 watches per year. Roger Smith. Ten. All by hand. He does not own one of his own watches. Never has. Because it's expensive. Well, he, he can't give up 10% right. of, you know, he can't take right. one watch out of the line of 10 per year, you know? And these watches are phenomenally expensive at, you know, new. And they're even they're worth even more kind of secondhand. But his watches, as Jeff said, are just, it, to me, it's yeah. the end game. There's a great story on Hurikit today about his oh, yeah. second pocket watch, which uh, there's a whole backstory to it, which basically mm-hmm. was he made a pocket watch and presented it to his uh, master, George Daniels, and George Daniels rejected it and said, go back and work on another version and do it better. It took him five years wow. of his entire life, livelihood, creating that second pocket watch. And then uh, George Daniels said, did you make every part by hand? He said, yes, congratulations, now you're a watchmaker. He then sold that pocket watch to a private buyer to fund the creation of his next series of watches, and that watch is going to be auctioned by Phillips, and I mean, I imagine we'll Seven smash figures? all kinds is of that, records. That, yeah. Oh yeah, uh, easily yeah, for sure. Easily. I mean, the, his wristwatches, like just generic wristwatches, now trade for about six, seven hundred. His 000. generic wristwatches. <laughs> I mean, if you can find one, they're <laughs> right, you know right. six, seven hundred thousand. So yeah. I mean, Jacobson Co. What do Jacob. what do you do with stuff like that? They're a half a million, yeah. a million. Yeah, it's a different thing. He I did mean, that iced out thing that went for thirty million. Right. like these are just insane numbers. It's a, yeah. it's a different corner of the market. It's a very real corner. Like yeah, those are really trading yeah. for sure. You know, he he tends to he designs it. He does the 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 setting and, and all the stonework, but the movement is He started as a jeweler. Yeah, and then... he, look, he's Jacob Jacob the jeweler right, on 47th yeah. Street. He's the guy in all the rap songs, <laughs> uh, literally. Um, so you know, it's a different corner of the market, but a very real one. And like, you know, he is selling those watches for crazy numbers all day. Huh, amazing. Yeah. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So, so let's talk a little bit about 
talking watches. Mm. This has become a super popular segment yeah. of Hodinkee. Uh, I know the first one was with John Mayer. How, right. how did this get started? Yeah, so so kind of taking a step back, in 2012 when I launched Straps online to sell Straps, mm-hmm. I got an email that said, hey, John Mayer here, love what you're doing, let's hop on the phone. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like I wonder who this is, some guy named John Mayer, you know, some accountant in Texas named John Mayer. Uh, so I got on the phone, it turns out it's John Mayer, the rock star, and we just became kind of fast friends. You know, we were, were about the same age, at the time, we were both living a really weird life. Mine was on the road traveling around for watches, taking pictures, mm-hmm. writing. He was an actual rock star. And we just became like true, true, very close friends very quickly. Uh, and so in 2013, he called me and he's like, hey, I'm in town doing Letterman or Leno or something like that. I've got a bag full of watches. Do you want to just like record a conversation about watches? And I said, sure. And we had- Wait, so this was Mayer's doing, his yeah, kind idea. Of. I mean, we'd always talked about doing a video together of some kind, but never never premeditated, never storyboarded or anything like that. And I've got a bag full of watches. Sounds like <laughs> yeah. he just knocked over yeah, the yeah. jewelry yeah. store on yeah. 47th he, he used to roll pretty heavy with stuff, not so much anymore just for security reasons. But right. you know, to, to, to our credit, like the first- Really, the second person we ever hired at Hodinkee was a full-time videographer. Uh-huh. So I said, who I went to Columbia with, Will, who's still with us. I said, actually, I got a video guy right here. And so we went. We were on Varick Street. We went over to a place called Little Prince, which is a little cafe there uh-huh. on Spring, or Prince, rather. And uh, and we walked in, and we said, hey, I got John Mayer coming here in 20 minutes. Can we shoot? And they were like, sure, we're not open yet. We don't really care, you know? And so we shot for an hour, one camera, one right. cameraman, and we just talked about watches. No makeup, no anything, no, you know, his assistant wasn't there. Um, and it just became internet magic in a bottle as things can happen you know can do well it was very authentic here's a guy who's who's a rock and roll star yeah uh this generation's eric clapton singer songwriter guitarist um touring with the dead post jerry yeah and it, you find out there's a whole nother dimension to him. Sure is. He's really into watches. Oh, you you really have no idea. So, I mean, it's so, remarkable. Yeah. So f- when you record this, you have any idea this is going to blow up? No, look. Or we, as you're doing it, you're thinking, oh, this is great stuff. It's uh, John is is an amazing person. He's the most well-spoken, most creative, oddest thinker of anybody uh-huh. ever met. And I say that lovingly. Like He's just got a different mind than the rest of us, truly. And uh, you know, we record, we were recording it. We're like, okay, like this is going to be special for us. But like, we're this little watch blog, three guys sitting in know we work you know sure and uh it, we put it online and it blows up i mean it just explodes and then from there jj reddick basketball player who sure. was a friend of mine at the time as well still is and said oh like i would do that he was into watches and then john goldberger this great collector and then aziz ansari and jack nicholas and you know insert whoever. it's just been a run of yeah. celebrities we, most recently i saw kevin hart kevin, and then who's the philly uh 76 to oh, Tobias Harris. Uh, Tobias I Harris. just saw that. was really kind of and Yesterday, Kermit the Frog. That was what I was going to say. Yesterday, we had Kermit the Frog, who I think trumps everybody. Yes, Kermit right. the Frog was on, was I can't, on. Biggest celebrity. I, I can't say I've ever spotted a timepiece on his Not green wrist. Yeah, exactly. He's yes. got Although he's, now, he has to get them especially now there is a Kermit watch Oris, yeah. from Oris, that, exactly. and he's out promoting this. Exactly. Yeah, so it was part of that. So um, the first of every month, instead of a one showing up, Kermit there's a, a Kermit. So, so as long as we're talking about it, uh, that was shown at Watches and Wonders 2023. Uh, what did you guys see? What did you like? What did you think of uh, what took place? I mean, uh, I'll say this. This is my second time going to Watches and Wonders. I had been to previous iterations of watch shows, uh, Basel World and SIHH. Mm-hmm. Watches and Wonders kind of was the the mashup, if you will, of Basel World and SIHH. Uh, went you know, dormant for a few years, of course, because of COVID. Came back in 2022. And I think it came back with a bang. It was almost like this pent up energy, sure. and this pent up like just this big release of uh, actual release of tons and tons of watches and some really incredible watches. 
I think 2023, there were some standout watches for sure. Probably less across the board, just wow effect than there was in 2022. I think some of that was that, again, build up. Uh, yeah, post-pandemic. I mean, for me, and I will say this, and, and he's sitting here right next to me, not trying to blow smoke, but like for me, one of the most special things was getting a chance to walk around with Ben. Uh, I'd been working with him at that point for a little over a year. A year prior, I was in my third week, and he had just had his first child, so he wasn't able to attend. He was at home with the baby. Um, but walking around with him was really special because you, you, you see a lot of people who instantly recognize Ben, come up to him hey, and say- Hey, this guy's a celebrity. Well, they say, so. they're like, you're the guy with uh, Kermit the Frog now. They say, <laughs> say some version of uh, the reason I'm in the industry is because of you, or the no reason kidding. I fell in love with the category is because of you. Uh, and that's, I said something to someone later that week because eventually it, it rubs off on you. I, mm-hmm. I have this association with Hodinkee now simply by being an employee of the, the brand for the last year. We hosted a kind of a community meetup event on the Thursday, uh, the last night that many of us were in town. Uh, and we, we just did an open invite RSVP through the website, through Hodinkee. So anybody who was in town was welcome to join. And I must have had a dozen people at least saying thank you to me. And I thought, Wow. I've never had, I've never worked for a brand or a business, and I work for some great brands. I mean, Cartier, Louis Vuitton, Tagwire. Never had someone come up to me and say thank you. And again, credit to this guy who started it all. That that's the impact he's had. That's the effect he's had, and that's the effect Hodinkee has had as a manifestation of all that Ben's you know created to this point. And now I get to sort of be a part of that. To be you know a part of uh, in some ways like serving this broader watch community and helping to kind of continue to further curiosity, knowledge, passion, enthusiasm. And, and, and it's, it's really a wonderful feeling for someone to come up to you, just be like, thank you for all that you're doing. Huh. And, and I, we don't take that for granted. I don't take that for granted. Certainly. I just think that's a really special thing. Yeah. That's a rarity. Yeah. What, yeah. what, what struck you at, at watches and wonders besides the Oris Kermit? <laughs> the Oris Kermit was a fun one. And I think, you know, echoing what Jeff said, it was my first time there because, A, my daughter was born last year and then COVID, so three years. So it had been four years since I was in Switzerland. And you've gone to that. ones before. Oh, for 15, 20 years, yeah. So getting back there and seeing people still appreciate what we're still doing. I've been doing this for 15 years. This is not like a two-year-old startup. Mm-hmm. So exciting to feel that energy and that mm-hmm. appreciation again, definitely, in person. Um, but in terms of product, look, Langa, we've talked about a lot. They make some of the best watches on earth. They introduced one watch, and they're only doing 100 of them. Which it's is crazy. It's Odysseus yeah. Chronograph. It's $150,000. It's kind of a flex to only launch one watch. Right. That is a flex <laughs> and PS gone. Oh, gone. They're all oh, accounted yeah. gone, gone, for. Gone. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't even. Never, hit the, it, never hit the shelf. But, um, by the way, uh, you mentioned the the uh, blue and, and brown Daytona, mm-hmm. which came out. A- any other new watches? I mean, I understand the entire Tudor thing blew up. I'm not a giant Tudor fan. Yeah, they I, just feel like they're lesser Rolexes. Well, I know that's blasphemy to say. No, but I mean, look, it's, it's not blasphemy, but I, I understand it. I, I happen to love Tudors. I think a they, Tudor Black by 58. They don't have the same proportions. They just feel like they're... Uh, and and I, I there were two I tried to... I really was went in to buy, mm-hmm. put them on, yeah. and it just kind of you got to yeah. buy what you like, you know. Right, um, right. But they they had a, a pretty strong year. Rolex has a new titanium watch, the Yachtmaster in titanium, I, full I, titanium. I really like that. That's watch. cool. That, I like that. Handsome. I like that more than I thought that I would. It's yeah. big but lightweight. Patek had a new uh, travel time watch. So wait, uh, you brought this up. Is it possible that? How is it possible Patek Philippe has not introduced a brand new watch? In 24 years, how is that humanly possible? Well, I mean, that, that's a little bit of parsing of, of words. There, a little bit. I so mean, they're th- always doing variations. Yeah. In so colors this is a new model line, brand new. Yeah. 
what other industry could go two decades plus and not introduce a new anything? I, you know, like I, I, Porsche. I mean, they yeah. haven't. I mean, I guess they did the Taycan. Well, the Taycan, the the how the Panamera is fifteen years old. Yeah. Um, the Macan is twelve years old. That they've. Remember, it was blasphemy for them to roll out an SUV. Yeah, of course, of fifteen course. years ago. Yeah. Um, but I mean, again, I mean, so like the the Taycan. I'm sorry, the the Cayenne was two thousand. Was the year two thousand. Right. So that's twenty three years ago. The Taycan, with which is the electric car, was probably what six years ago, five Not years even. ago. I think um, it's less than that. Okay. It's a little but, bit like Paul McCartney, right? He hasn't released an album in thirty years, but he McCartney. can sell out arenas. Yeah, but and, if yeah. you're a Beatle, right? If you're one of the two surviving Beatles, you can probably. Oh, the Patek uh, is Patek. Yeah. You know, I, I, think. I guess that's the parallel. <laughs> so, so since since we're talking about cars, and I know you have to run soon. Sure. Uh, you spent the pandemic rebuilding a 330 GTC. <laughs> That's a, a slight, a slight exaggeration of my role in that. Um, oh. So I was, I was working with somebody that was helping to do it. So I wasn't rebuilding it. This myself. was a literally barn find a garage find yeah. right uh, they call it a barn find but it was in a garage in rome uh that's a all car, original all original untouched uh it was on bloomberg a few weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, my friend hannah wrote that story um so she's yeah. been a guest here a couple of times she's great she, she's wonderful so she was actually i actually visited her and magnus in their oh, shop the in la it's yeah. bonkers so so tying it all together hannah was actually my editor at one of my very first freelance jobs oh, no kidding at, at forbes? forbes exactly but not for watches she she was editing a a literary blog like a book blog uh-huh. and i was writing for that uh, unpaid to be oh clear. that's crazy uh, but i just wanted i wanted the Small byline world. on forbes yeah um so she's amazing but yeah so i i'm really into cars and i spent uh a, a little bit of time and a lot of money doing that during during covid um but that's what i'm into i'm, I'm into finding these things that have d- direct connections with interesting people and and keeping them going what what other cars are you playing with uh i've got i drive an e39 m5 almost every day okay. BMW i have M5. an m6 so oh, cool. i know the yeah the space convertible six i i the last year they made the sticks the stick and i it, couldn't yeah. find it i had to fly out to indianapolis wow test drive it and then my wife and i drove it home oh, that's fun stopping off at falling waters the first day they were open for the season i'm not oh, kidding amazing. i did that in a gt3 touring i stopped here. off at falling water yeah truly like no, i, no, I have no a client that has a gt3 that he wanted to sell huh. and the dealer said give it to us we'll take a 20 percent consignment i'm yeah. like we know people that bring a trailer. Yeah, exactly. Let me yeah. list it for you. So yeah. that's what where that's going. That's really funny though. GT3 stick ship. Touring. It yeah. was the f- touring, mm-hmm. right, no wing, but mm-hmm. the stick, which yeah. is now becoming increasingly rare. Yeah. We were there the first day it was open, and I'm driving this 600 horsepower monster, yeah. and there's like a light dusting of snow. Yeah. So I am like feathering the throttle, because yeah. <laughs> with just the slightest touch, you're going sideways. Yes. So, yeah. But it was spect- what a spectacular place in it really nowhere. is it really is um, it's amazing yeah into bmws into porsches um you know stuff here and there but Spe- so a little blasphemy yeah i i have two 911s one i'm keeping stock mm-hmm. that's a cabrio by the way pre before they went crazy i picked these up for pennies right. and i have so the 87 is a cabrio the i'm sorry the 88 is a cabrio the 87 is a 300,000 mile car wow that i'm pulling the engine and the transmission out dropping a tesla motor and completely no electrifying a 911e with moment motors in in austin oh that's so cool cool and i i've been on the wait so all these guys are booked a year yeah totally i've been on the wait list for almost a year it goes down to texas by the time this broadcasts it should be in Texas. That's awesome. Getting a heart transplant. Amazing. And Super cool. 
that's kind of a fun that's problem. a fun yeah, story a fun sure. and by the time I'm done I would would have been able to walk into a dealer and say give me that 911 yeah. for what this will end up costing yep. but it'll be the only electric 911 in New York by the time cool. it's done super so, cool uh, so if you're a, a BMW and a Porsche fan I, I feel your 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 taste the one thing I have to ask yes, in sir. terms of Grail watches yeah so the and I'm not just a Langa person sure. but the and I am going to mangle the pronunciation. The Handwerkskunst, yep. Torbion, yeah, that just has the numbers and that sort of carved. Yeah, the the aperture at six. Yeah. Uh, what the hell does that thing go for these uh, days? You, by the way, complete. You can't see them anywhere. Yeah, I, mean, I saw one was somewhere at auction. I found out about afterwards. I, I would I would ballpark three hundred. Okay. And that, that was 80, 90 when it came out? Uh, probably more. I mean, if, if I know a website that would probably be able to tell you. I think we covered it. In fact, I know we covered it when it um, came out. A, um, a buck and change? Yeah, I would guess 130, 140. Oh, announced. so it's only double. So. Yeah. But I mean, th- those are, those are the, the air is thin in that world. Like, it's I not saw novice, one of those you know? go for about 200 about a year ago. Yeah. And again, I'm still wrestling with a thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 yeah. watch. 200 is like next level. Yeah. It's, it's just, I mean, as Jeff said earlier, really earliest in, the, in, in this in this session, like it's just supply and demand. There's a lot more guys that want a Nautilus or an Aquanaut yeah. because they know what it is or a Daytona. Right. That nobody's ever heard of a Hanworks Guns Turbion from Long Island. Really? Even if it is that much. Oh it, my it God. Is that that, much that could be the like, if I have that's a Grail watch, yeah. that's yeah. it. Yep. And once I do that, then I just, you know. You're done. I, Probably not. Where do you go from <laughs> yeah, there? Exactly. I mean that. So yeah, that's the problem. Listen, that's the same problem yeah. with the Grand Longa One. Where, yeah. where do you go from there? Yeah. It it just you just start going full OCD and backfilling and yep. it, it's crazy. So I have a bone to pick with you guys. Okay. I'm speaking at some event in Aspen. It was the International Luxury Real Estate, and I've been writing about real estate my whole career. So sure. they invited me, and. I, you know, they say get there a day or so early because the altitude is, yeah. you know, you don't want to stand up and uh, if you've been to Vail, sure. it's the same sort of thing. So, all right, I get there, I get a day to kill and I go into Aspen and what is this a Langen zone shop? Yeah. So I go in and I see the Langa One, which is their famous 1994 watch that's asymmetrical, which yeah. was a radical departure from sure. watches. And I think this was like March, April. Yeah. And um, I get back home, and I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You see a watch, and it just starts to haunt you. Uh, yeah. You, yes. oh, yeah. Right? I'm talking <laughs> Remember to who you're right talking crowd. to here, yeah. yeah. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. I have a big round birthday coming up in October. Yeah. And so I make an appointment to go into the Langa Boutique in New York. And I try on the Langa one. And look, I'm not a little guy. 38 millimeters. What is this, a toy? I need a real watch. And so the woman says, oh, we have the Grand Longa yeah, one. Sure. And I try on, um, it wasn't the one I fell in love with, and it wasn't the one I ultimately really wanted, but mm-hmm. have a bone to pick with you. It was um, it was a Grand Longa, but without the moon phase in that sort of mm-hmm. chocolate, silver, gray. I don't even know how to describe the color. Okay, sure. Um, and so I start looking around and looking around, and now I find, I find the Saxonia with a moon face, black watch, pink face, and I'm waiting on. I'm trying to decide if I want that, and then I see the platinum, Grand Longa one. What is that? Forty one and a half, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, exactly. And um, 
And it's on your, it's 66 new, mm -hmm. but new papers box yeah. on Hodinkee 42. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying really hard to wrap my head around 42. It's a lot of money for a watch. Yeah, it is. And I can afford it, but it's it's just a lot of money. So I make the decision, I don't remember if it was like the end of August or the end of September. Hey, my birthday's in October. I'm going to go get that watch on my birthday. Sure. Even though it's going to kill me to spend that much money. Yeah. It just, it's, I have way too many cars. I have a, like, I'm not afraid to spend money, right. but to strap a BMW on your wrist, you have to mentally brace yourself for that. <laughs> so my birthday rolls around and I, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I go to the Hodinkee site. Gone. <laughs> and yeah. not only is it gone, you can't find them for sale anywhere. Wow. <laughs> they just have disappeared. I have buddies on 47th Street. And I'm like, find me a Grand Lango one. The, I think it's the 135, 25, something We like should that. talk off air. Yeah, we can, yeah. We can, um, we yeah, we, so, so, so you can find them new in Switzerland sure. for retail, right. and you still have to pay like a 9%. Import. It's insane. Yeah. So, so I this was my other... Longa choice. That's a great watch. Which, by the way, this is even more dressy than the platinum. That, that's almost like a sporty yeah, for version of that watch. And I'm, I don't want to order it from a site I'm not familiar with. Yeah. And it turns out that the guys that have this watch are in Aventura. I'm at a different conference in Miami, and I do my gig. I come literally off the stage into an Uber run to Aventura, look at the watch. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't take a credit card. <laughs> but I mean, it's a whole room full of, well, if they take a credit card, they're gonna charge a credit card sure, for you, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yep. But they weren't set up to do it there. And so get home, wired, and the next day the watch showed up. Yeah. So this is my, I couldn't get my Grand Lango one, but, um, and it was 42, and I'm like, now, how often do you kick yourself? Yeah, you all the time. Yeah, right? turns out all the time. And we can help get that watch, yeah. even now. And no. the the other the other Daytona. I don't want to make this all about my watch shopping. Uh, <laughs> so I'm so I do this with cars. Yeah, I I have way too many cars. I'll watch a car come out. I'll watch the price wobble, and I'm like, come to Papa, a little, <laughs> little, little, little lower. Yeah. And um, I bought an, uh, a couple of nice things during the beginning of the pandemic when people were freaking out. Yep. And uh, I'm looking at the Daytona in the white, gold, and blue face. Mm -hmm. Which was, I think, 26, 28 retail. It was 20, it was 19, it was 18. I'm buyer at 16. And all, then the lockdown happens yeah. and it's 45, 55, higher, 65. Yeah. It yeah. just goes nuts. Yeah. I'm like, for two grand, <laughs> you look what you did. You, you friggin'. Nobody ever could have guessed, though. You no. know? So uh, hold aside these million dollar watches, these $100,000 watches. Mm -hmm. A newbie interested in watches. How did they get involved in watch collecting? What, where would you send somebody like that? Uh, really, I think, you know, kind of riffing off of something Ben said earlier, which is this kind of, um, th there's a sense of like the imitation culture, like you want something because you see other people having mm -hmm. it. Uh, for me, I, I personally think the best way to build a collection is just really follow your passion. Uh, get out there, educate yourself, learn, read. Um, visit a few retailers, um, you know, maybe, maybe check out an auction, you know, catalog to see what's, uh, what's considered to have like history or provenance of just do your research. And then ultimately, you know, pick something that really speaks to you. Um, if there's a way to, again, weave some sort of milestone or, 
uh, personal aspect into the watch. I think one thing I often think about is of all the things you put on your person, a watch is one of the very few that will actually typically have a story associated mm-hmm. to it. Like mm-hmm. your sneakers, your jeans, your sweater typically will not. So right. I don't know. And then there's something just special about that. Like, like Ben said, they're sort of like totems of our lives in some way. And uh, a collector, I think, you know, will always remember her, his first watch. I think it's just, you know, it's worth it to take the time to do the research and really wait for that thing that sort of speaks your name. Yeah. And I, I would certainly echo all that, but I would also say listen to actual experts in a field, not the guy you found on YouTube or the gal you found on, on Instagram or TikTok. There's so many people out there that are purporting to be experts in this space, mm-hmm. mostly on social media, YouTube, TikTok, et cetera, that have no idea. I mean, they're just kids that think they understand things. And to be clear, I was one of those kids. I've since put in 15 years to ensure that I'm not one of <laughs> right. those kids. Uh, and there are people out there that really know watches, and then there are people out there that really don't and pretend to. Understand the source. I mean, going back to journalism school, like know your source, know mm-hmm. who's saying what and why, know who's a retailer of so-and-so, knew, know who owns 20 of these, so they're trying to build it up. Really understand why people are saying things that they are. Huh. And any particular brands you would send people to, like I always tell people, what, someone asked me about a watch, I'm like, Hey, go look at Seiko. Seiko if you're wrong, yeah. you spend four hundred dollars. Yeah, gas. Seiko Swatch System Fifty One, self-winding watch for one hundred fifty bucks. Mm-hmm. We sell them on, on Hudinki. They're amazing. They really mm-hmm. are. And and the next step from there, and then we're gonna then then Hamilton go. Hamilton Field watches really yeah. handsome watches. Yeah, oh, great watch. Five, solid, bucks, yeah. solid, long lasting. Agreed. All right, now I'm gonna take you one last one. I keep yeah. saying last one. So you go past Hamilton. Where do you go? Tag Tag Heuer. Uh huh. You know, a Tag Heuer Aqua Racer, a Tag Heuer uh, Monaco. Even mm-hmm. those are great watches. Carreras. They're a little bit more money, but great watches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. How about yeah. Jeff? Anything from you? I would say you know I, I love the Hamilton pick. I think the Hamilton Field watch is like a total classic. I bought their one new my, Chrono, by the way, yeah. is really crazy yeah. handsome for what it Beautiful, is. Yeah, and really very is. reasonably priced. Yeah. I bought the field watch for my brother and one for myself kind of when I joined Hodinkee as a the nice little celebration of that moment. And then uh, if I were going to go one level, I, I, I'd say the Tudor Black Bay 58. And mm. we talked a little bit it's about Tudor. 56, 58, yeah, 59, 58. it's hard to keep up. <laughs> for me, it's perfect kind of size. It's, it's a great everyday watch. The, great they have a the very money. vintage vibe to it. That's yeah. kind of what attracted me to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Guys, thank you so much this for being such a so pleasure. generous yeah. a lot of fun. with your really time. Great. Next time we do this, I'll have a camera crew. We'll do talking watches. Yes. Let's do it. I'll just do. A, I'll just grab a dozen watches from people here. Okay. And <laughs> thank you guys for being so generous with your time. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 493 such discussions we've had over the previous nine years. You can find those at YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at Podcasts. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Paris Wold is my producer. Samantha Danziger is my audio engineer. Sean Russo is my researcher. Atika Valbron is my project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. 
Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.